currents will pass, girl. The tides that rise will ebb. Not in our lifetime, but someday. All things have a cycle. After destruction, rebirth. Knowledge gives us ways to survive the destruction. Till the rebirth arrives, the floods... until that night like that was a fucking UFO um and so yeah again these seem to pop up all up and down that that stretch of coast they're very common all throughout Florida actually very um interestingly bizarrely there's a lot of well, theory let's get into why all things have a cycle after destruction rebirth knowledge gives us ways to survive the destruction till the rebirth arrives the floods the common archetypes and so when we're we're reaching out to this unknowable information this nonsense we're we have better frameworks to bring it back to and we continue to make the crawl forward to eventually where these things will make sense they'll, they'll be understandable information around ufos around ghosts around whatever topic that we'll be diving into for the next couple months will cross hairs of the voids of ufology, parapsychology, paranormal activities, abduction stories, and will interweave earthen energy systems, cymatics, solfeggio scales, electromagnetism, understanding the parallels between energy sacred sites and paranormal and see how they tie together see how these stories interweave so take each episode 
and put them in your pocket. Make some notes and see how we might be able to make a master weave and how all things eventually connect. Like I said, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Rising from the Ashes. I would love to invite you guys over to Telegram. Telegram is a social media platform that we use specifically here on the Rising from the Ashes. Dan and I have a group chat going on over there. It's a really great platform for everybody to connect in a community way. A bunch of other podcasts also have groups over there. So likely you will find where you fit in. And I'll let you know right now, you'll fit in at the Rising from the Ashes Telegram group. It's growing and it is showing true potential for amazing friends to be made. I just shared a PDF book on there yesterday. A huge book. Just clicked and dragged and I was like, oh, here you go, friends. Here you go, Fire Tribe. Here's a book. So it's a really great platform to share big files and have group messaging and all these things. That being said, friends, you guys are so amazing. If you want to support us more than just listening to the show, make sure to like, share, subscribe, and share this with your friends. Also, if you want to be extra, extra spicy, part of the Fire Tribe, you can go over to Patreon and hit us with $3 a month. It's incredibly helpful. Helps pay for all of the software programs and you know all the little doodads and things that the uh, that cost money in the podcast world. And so it it goes a long way. Really appreciate it. Uh, either way, we love that you guys are here. We love you guys so much. And it's all about the gnosis and the information and understanding and coming together. Also, yes, I'm going to shameless plug. I have been making hand-rolled incense, harvesting pine pitch, pine sap from trees here in the forest, processing it, powdering herbs and wood dust, different things, and creating handmade incense. It's a new project and passion of mine. Started a farmer's market booth where I am selling them, and I think I came up with a name for this little brand that I'm starting. It's called Moth Mountain. Moth Mountain, Natural Alchemy, and Botanicals. Where I have a still where I make essential oils and hydrosols, and I make little sprays for your face. It's like a tonic, and it feels so refreshing and good. I make them out of all different types of herbs. St. John's War, Usnea sage, lavender, rosemary, pine. It's all really great. You guys can email me if you're interested in any hand-rolled incense, thick, smoky goodness to fill your house with enchanted smells. And also contact me if you are interested in any hydrosol sprays. They feel amazing. I've already shipped out some boxes. Getting in the hang of shipping stuff out. (laughs) 
Oi, oi, oi. Also want to let you guys know about VisionSwitch.space. Our friend Sabaya Sogard is a clairvoyant and psychic worker, and she has been gracious enough to offer her services at a great discounted rate. If you are from the Fire Tribe, she will hook you up. And what her services include, well, you can check out on her website specifically, but I have had past life readings from her. I have had energy healings, energy readings, energy clearings, so much. Uh, she used to be a body worker as well, and I used to get so many massages from her. She's she's a healer. So if you need a healer in your life, check out our friend Sabaya Sogard over at visionswitch.space. It'll all be in the show notes. Without further ado, we're going to get into some RF. TA News with our good friend Adam Stokes. He's going to tell us about a convention that he just spoke at. And then we're going to get into the interview right after that with Chaz of the Dead. Kicking off our paranormal, UFOlogy, energy, months, topics, deep dives. And boy, oh boy, it's going to be a wild ride. So strap in, Fire Tribe. And get ready for some R F T A news. What's up? What's up? What's up? Welcome to What's up, Fire Tribe? Welcome to Rising. From the Ashes. I'm Danny Knock Dan. I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello. Hello, it's time for that RFTA News. RFTA News. We're, we're here again with Adam Stokes. Adam, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. Everything's going well. Yeah, how was the trip to the ARE? It was great. Amazing trip. My whole family, we all went down. So my wife was with the kids. They went to the beach and did all the fun Virginia Beach stuff. It was actually great weather, even though it was like early October. Um, beautiful weather, um, beautiful day. Uh, we spent actually two or three days there. Um, beautiful weather throughout. I thought it was going to be like super cold and it wasn't. So they were doing all the fun stuff. I was doing fun stuff too, in a different sense. I was at the conference and I presented on Saturday. Um, what I was telling you guys about a few weeks back, looking at the correlation between native American mounds, uh, the book of Morgan Mormon and the Edgar Casey readings. Uh, but the lectures were phenomenal. The presentations were phenomenal. The people at ARE were great. Um, very supportive. Um, just a wonderful experience. I got to hang out at the ARE library and look at a bunch of Edgar Casey readings. I've been a follower of Casey for like 20 years, um, since I was a junior in college. Um, so, uh, just, just really good stuff. Um, there was a common thread kind of going to um, talking about uh, ancient uh, Hermetica and uh, magic and stuff like that. There was a common thread through all of our uh, talks about Egypt and the importance of Egypt. And there was a really great talk uh, to take away the focus from myself by a guy named Manu uh, Seifzadeh. Seif and uh, he's an Egyptian, and he talked about basically the possibility of a hall of records with all of this knowledge um, in it uh, in Egypt underneath the Sphinx that 
mainstream Egyptologists won't let you dig around uh, to get to because they would kind of throw a lot of things, including the dating of the Sphinx, on its head. And he brought in the theories. If you ever get the chance before you die, uh, look at Mystery of the Sphinx by John Anthony West. And really, he kind of redates all of Egyptian history uh, differently than what mainstream uh, Egyptologists do uh, based on the um, erosion of the of the Sphinx. Um, so really fascinating discussion. Um, Edgar Casey himself prophesied that there was a hall of records containing all types of knowledge, um, all types of magical formulas and stuff underneath uh, underneath the Sphinx and uh, ancient text, as uh, Dr. Um, Sefzadeh's lecture pointed out, ancient texts uh, seem to support this. It even uses the term uh, storehouse or record house. So really fascinating uh, discussions. I got to meet some wonderful people. Freddie Silva was there. I got to meet him. John Bacon was there. I got to meet him. Um, and just uh, really, yeah, amazing experience. So I'm still kind of basking in the glow of it, even though I had to return back to uh, the normal world. Excellent, man. Uh, we just uh, uploaded the episode with Sarah Bresman Cosme, who uh, who did a, a book about the Sphinx. Uh, she does past awesome. life regressions. Yeah, and uh, she's uh, so it's pretty interesting to talk to her about it. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on with the Sphinx, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely one of the most fascinating uh, fascinating things uh, in the in the ancient world but there's a whole if you follow the mythology uh the egyptian mythology behind the sphinx and for me mythology is never mythology it always points to the truth um that coincides much more with the really early dates that john anthony west and edgar casey gave uh for the sphinx i, I used to teach a mythology course in my other school and so we'd always uh spend a section um, a portion of the class on Egyptian mythology, and it talks about like the building of the Sphinx and dates the Sphinx to being really old at the time of the gods, and uh, much different than uh, what modern Egyptologists uh, do. So, um, go figure. <laughs> yeah, never yeah. surprised there. Never surprised there. Uh, so, you know, with the with the Sphinx and and with your having had taught some classes of it, now that we're just on this topic, right, what is your um and maybe like there's something tied into uh something cool about the esoteric Mormonism that like kind of ties into the belief of what the Sphinx was before the change of the head, or if you believe the head was ever changed. That's what I was gonna ask too, yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if the head was ever changed. You know, there's it's funny you mentioned it, Roman, because there's a lot of Mormon Egypt Egypt connections. Mm -hmm. There's a book called The Book of Abraham, which is actually purported to be translated from an ancient Egyptian papyri. And there's a lot of debate about that because once uh, the Rosetta Stone was discovered and they translated the papyri, it seemed different than what Joseph Smith translated. But then there's a thing that whether this was the actual papyri and the other papyri that Joseph Smith translated was burned and destroyed in the, in the Great Chicago Fire, so we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, there's a strong Egypt-Mormon uh, connection. And in the Book of Abraham, there are a bunch of images of different uh, Egyptian gods um, and goddesses, and they're mentioned in the book um, as well. 
Um, but I, I think that Sphinx head was always the way it was. I don't. I, I think it was damaged, but I don't think it actually was changed. Wow, interesting. I, I definitely think it was a, a lion uh, at, at one point. Um, I watched yeah. a couple of videos uh, during you know Egypt month and stuff to study it and to look into it further. And I, I, I see, I watched one video with two opposing views in the same video, which was nice uh, because it kind of gives you context for both uh, both viewpoints. Yeah. And I, I, one guy had found an old picture of, uh, of a lion. Yeah. And he compared that old picture that he found that was drawn in the wall to the actual Sphinx. And they looked a lot similar. He even uh, overlaid it over the top of the Sphinx to show you what it would have looked like if it had a yeah. lion lion head. And uh, that was pretty interesting. But the other guy, the guy that was more by the book, he said that there wasn't a lot of evidence uh, historically to support the fact that it was a lion's head. There was no, like, a lot of... Uh, there wasn't a lot of, like... Uh, texts or anything about about it being something different and they believe that it was built at the same time as the pyramids by like khufu's son or yeah. even one a different son jeffer i think it was yeah and that he possibly built it for his father uh so it, if khufu built the pyramids and how would how could it be older than the pyramids so uh that it was kind of interesting. I don't believe that the pyramids were built by Khufu anyway, but it's still, I don't, I don't think either. Yeah. still interesting nonetheless, you know. Well, well you it's know. interesting because there's this yeah. in, in mythology, it's it's a human head with like a lion body, mm -hmm. and it's just like this um this really horrific thing that you know if it, it goes around, if you don't um if you don't answer a riddle properly, it like freaking kills you. So this is what <laughs> Oedipus Rex. Um, he fights the Sphinx. He gets the riddle right, and the Sphinx go goes away and stops terrorizing Corinth. Um, that's kind of a later myth in Greek mythology. But um, yeah, the Sphinx is kind of described weird as you know part human, part lion. So uh, not quite sure what's going on there. We know the body at least, and this is attested to in the actual Sphinx itself um, is definitely a lion's body. Yeah, I, and there's like a bunch of old. Um alchemical text too like these images where it's like a man's face on a lion's body kind of like you know uh like the, the werewolf aspect or whatever and what have you so i think that it pays homage to some uh alchemical processes you know it's like man being the lion encompassing that god like the gold like aspect of god god and gold and that kind of thing together but then again at the same time you know it, at the same sense, just to be a devil's advocate on the own thing, Bastet, you know, was a, a very highly worshipped goddess there and deity, and the cat worship in Egypt is always talked about. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't know, but uh, it's fun to speculate. But either way, we have what we have now, and that, that to me, pays definitely homage to uh, what you were talking about with, like, the, the lion-headed man um, and just kind of, like, having that self-mastery you know, like it's, 
you've reached that point of complete lion, you know, lion from Zion type of thing. It's so much deeper than a statue. I think there's so much, there's philosophical, um, esoteric uh, stuff going on there. Um, And I think, you know, I think in all of these, uh, all of these great things around the world, um, the Sphinx, uh, the pyramid, other things, you know, it's about you. It's about your connection to the source and to the divine. I think you see this with the Native American mounds. You know, it's not just you know, mm-hmm. not just clumps of clumps of earth, not just burial sites, but also spiritual centers where you connect uh, with the divine. So I think all of that's going on all around the world. Mm. Yeah. Um, also in the video, they talked about like the the causeway from the Great Pyramid to the Sphinx was like altered. It wasn't like a straightaway access. It was angled. So they believe that the Sphinx was already there before the pyramid was built, or at least the, before the causeway was built, because otherwise it would have it would have lined up. It would have would have lined up. Yeah, John Anthony West, I think, notes that in his in his movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. Also heard a story too of it being Anubis and the dog-headed uh, deity. Which I hmm. find kind of interesting because of the of the connection to like the Dua and the dog people of Egypt, um, and it, it's kind of like a guardian of the, maybe the underworld or of hidden secrets, which is the dog is usually a symbol of the guardian. Yeah, well, there you know it's funny because Edgar Casey um, he talked about a sentinel being found. Uh, at the at the Sphinx that was guarding the Hall of Records, um, and Anubis would kind of play well into. That. I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think Doctor uh, Sifzade uh, talked about the possibility of Anubis as well. But if you if you recall, like Dan said, Anubis is the protector of uh, the underworld. So in the movie mm-hmm. Gods of Egypt, which I really like, it got a lot of slack because it cast like Western actors in it. But I actually love the movie, so. Um, but you have Anubis there who like leads the girl to the underworld. So um, that is a possibility. Maybe, maybe Anubis is the guardian protecting the, the, um, the hall of records. Well, the Sphinx too. I mean, or I, sorry, the Griffin itself is uh, noted and, and the, the Sphinx isn't a Griffin, but the Griffin does notably guard heavy treasures or guard, you know, like secret places. And so I think there's definitely that being pointed to with, you know, whether or not it's, this is like a marking of a location that is, you know, like even mythologically speaking, holding some great gold or some great secrets and great treasure of antiquity. It's so fascinating. But where's the other Sphinx at? There's another one somewhere. There's another Sphinx somewhere. Yeah. I I did watch a video on that. And there's uh, another temple in Egypt that if you look at it, it, you can actually see like kind of like the legs and the body of what was possibly a second Sphinx. But it's been pretty much decapitated. There's no he- really head left on it anymore. And they've uh, reconstructed it to look more like just like a like a building, more so than anything else. And but you can see parts of it uh, that do 
kind of resemble like a lion body. And the guy uh, had a, a, what's the one called? Uh, somebody that shows people stuff, you know? He had like a guide that showed him this and he found it and he did like a whole YouTube video on it. I forget the guy's name where I'd shout him out. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, sometimes they hide stuff in plain sight too. Uh, and then when we talked to, uh, uh, I forget that other guest that we talked to, but, uh, you know, if there's water surrounding the Sphinx or Mercury, there would be a reflection of another lion. So that's possibly how you could get a second lion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The reflection pool. That's awesome. I think there was water. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, I definitely, like I said, I agree with John Anthony West completely on that, that that whole area one time was lush, full of like liquid around, like the some type of water surrounded uh, the Sphinx or some type of liquid surrounded the Sphinx. Absolutely. Do you, do you think that when they built the pyramids and the Sphinx that it was more of like a, a tropical area? I think when the Sphinx, I, I the, think when the Sphinx was built, yeah, the, the, the pyramids... Um, and this goes back to the dating of the pyramids. Um, I think the Sphinx is significantly older than the pyramids. Um, mm. So not sure if it was tropical and lush when the pyramids were built, but when the Sphinx was, yeah, I think it was kind of like an Edenic kind of like really uh, kind of paradise type of type of place. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, uh, before the flood happened, that if that's when it was built, it would have been a more lush area because it seems like the flood washed away like and brought in all that sand to the Sahara. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, and I've seen videos also where they say that like 20,000 years ago, the Sahara was, you know, a tropical rainforest or whatnot. So, and that memory is retained in some ancient texts. So, like, even the Bible says, you know, the Nile used to be like the Garden of Eden. So, wow. clearly, people remembered how Egypt how Egypt was, how the area around the Sphinx was, and they passed that memory on and on, and that got recorded, that got passed on through oral tradition and later got written down. So, people remembered that. Do you know if there's any, like, lion uh, or, like, Sphinx-type, uh, structures in other parts of the world, like maybe in, yeah, in South yeah. America or anything like that, uh, because that's sure. more of like a jungle, jungly place. And there seems to be a lot of cross correlation with uh, the Mayans and Aztecs in Egypt. Exactly, and Aztecs yeah. in Egypt. That'd be a curious thing. I need to look into that. Maybe I'll look into that and and, and let you guys know next time we talk. So, yeah, like Puma yeah. Pumku and. Uh, a lot of things have like lion type names, you know, uh, the Puma, the cheetah is, I heard that, you know, the, the Pharaohs of Egypt or the higher class would wear, uh, like lion or cheetah printed, uh, outfits. And that was like a sign of their royalty mm -hmm. and stuff like that in their lineage. So even there they have the cat motif. So it seems even more likely they, that, there'd be something more associated with the lion as a cat yeah. or even just built in the image of a cat, but with the Pharaoh's head to signify that yeah. royalty. Yeah. Which I think is going on with, uh, 
with with the Egyptian Sphinx. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, what yeah, was another awesome. uh, takeaway from that mm-hmm. from that trip this weekend? Uh, you know, you did your you did your speeches and everything, but was there something that you kind of uh, had a had a mind blowing experience or something that like did you get some extra clicks or pulls of the light bulb or anything? Yeah, I. Um... Like I said, the resources of ARE are, are wonderful. There's there's so much. I spent five hours in their library, and nice. I felt so enlightened, literally, no pun intended, um, <laughs> after, after that experience and kind of realizing that there are a lot of people who are discontent with the mainstream traditional view of history and feel correctly that there is a more accurate view of history out there that needs to be reconst- that needs to be reconstructed and uh, basically promoted. Um, and these, you know, and I-, I loved kind of the audience I was participating with. These were people who, you know, knew their stuff really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Egyptian, their Egyptology. Uh, South American, uh, Mayan, uh, Inca stuff. Um, they knew their stuff very, very well. They were very familiar with mainstream, uh, views about history, but, uh, in their own research and in their own conclusions, um, had, uh, had basically, uh, decided that what mainstream academia was giving them the main, uh, the traditional view of history was just incorrect. And I think they were absolutely right, but it wasn't like, I, I say this all because I think sometimes there's, there's pushback, you know, people say, Oh, you guys don't know what you're doing. Uh, the academics know what they're doing, but no, these people were, were very well read, very well versed, uh, knew their stuff like the back of their hand. And um, yeah, it, it just, it was, it was very comforting to see that, you know, so many people, are open to, you know, looking at history in a different way than they've, they've been traditionally taught. And they have a passion for it. You know, they're out here, uh, you know, going to these, going to these events, supporting people, you know, and, and supporting everybody. And that's, what's really great about that, you know, is like people are bonding together um, to make it happen because it won't happen unless we absolutely take, you know, take action. It's, and it's it's not easy, you know. But no one ever said it was going to be. We just want it to be, you know. It yeah. would be nice, and it'll be easier once momentum is just going and flowing. But uh, it's cool to see um, see these see these big strides like that. Um, how, how how big you said about five hundred people? Yeah, quite a few. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was quite a few people. So whole parking lot was packed. Um, the the chairs were. Uh, it was uh, almost almost standing room only, so um, only a few chairs uh, for each of the for each of the presentations. I had a really good turnout, um, so um, it went it was it went really really well. I'm really looking forward to uh, doing this, uh, hopefully doing this in the future some more. Excellent, man. <clears throat> I just had one more question. Like, how accurate do you think the dating of like the different dynasties in Egypt were because, you know, we've heard that like Napoleon or whatnot is the one that found the Sphinx and it was covered up to his neck in sand. It seems like uh, they're uncovering a lot of other places in Egypt. I, I that think have those dynasty dating's been, old. 
Old Kingdom, Middle Kingdom, I think they're all crud, honestly, uh, Dan. I think they're absolute crud. I think Egypt goes way, way back, way further than what uh, mod- what modern uh, Egyptology uh, dates it. I, I don't – those dates, I, I completely I, – I don't even go by those dates. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Interesting, yeah, because that's kind of what I was thinking too is like I, I don't feel like even that's like the right time period because it seems like it, it should be more – more in our our common knowledge now you know if it was a civilization that lasted up until uh, you know the early ad's uh yeah it should have been spoken about a lot more by other people uh so it seems like maybe yeah. it was but a farther back civilization uh-huh. and it got buried yeah it got buried and it, some of it got forgotten and we see this um going to the you know the new world with the mounds, you have a race, you have a civilization that's so old that people forget, you know, who these people were. And like you said, I think, Dan, you hit it on the nail on the head. If we're talking about the late kingdom here, and this is like the 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 late, uh, the couple centuries before the common era, um, come on now. People would have much more, uh, would have retained a lot more information. We wouldn't be so speculative, speculative about the Egyptians that they were that close to us in history. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I totally agree with that. Awesome. Excellent. Roman, anything else for you? Um, well, I mean, that was, that was really cool. Sorry, I'm lighting, lighting some Palo Santo right now. I got a match and I'm stepping away from a, a microphone. Um, well, I'm glad you got to uh, go to that and experience that and, and meet all these really cool people and do a presentation and just, you know, be a part of a huge movement that, uh, that, you know, we can't wait to just see become the mainstream narrative at, you know, that, that slow roll. And so it's an honor. Um, it's an honor to, to be a part of the process and to work with it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if I have any more questions specifically to that tonight, but, um, you know, until next time, the mysteries of history unfold be- beyond us, and and it'll be uh, it'll be a blessing again to share some stories. Sounds good. Yes, yes. All right. Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, if you want, do you have any plugs you want to get out? Anything else going on? People to come see you. Done any other shows lately? Other podcasts? You can shout those out too. We don't mind around here, man. Um, yeah, I have, I have a few podcasts lined up. Uh, one of them is about uh, Latin, the Latin language, and another one is um, about uh, some Mormon stuff. Go figure. So, um, but yeah, I'm, nice. I'm still a little nice. bit worn out because I mean, we drove down to Virginia Beach, so I'm gonna take it easy these next couple of weeks. Uh, but I do have some stuff. I do have some stuff lined up, and I'll tell you guys more about that the closer uh, I get to that timeline. All right, yeah. Are those podcasts cool. coming up soon? You can say the name of them too. I'd like to hear you uh, uh, rap about the Mormonism and stuff too. So I like yeah, to go check out one of them. Scriptural Mormonism, and the other one is uh, Debbie gets red pilled. So uh, okay, Excellent. I'm still kind of in talks, trying to find uh, the dates and times uh, for those. So yeah. All right. Cool. Shout out to Adam and Chud. Uh, they're friends of ours too. So. Right on, man. I, I think I heard you on their on their show like about a month back. Yeah, too, yeah, yeah. Yep. Excellent. Good cool, folks. man. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Fire Chai, for listening. 
And uh, we'll get into, uh, we're going to be getting into paranormal and energy this month. So this was like a little wrap up from Egypt and uh, Sumeria month uh, in the intro here uh, with the Sphinx. But uh, stay tuned for some scary stories, some paranormal activity and uh, some energy and consciousness and all kinds of good stuff coming in uh, up the next couple of months. So. Parapsychology, ufology, cymatics, ley lines, uh, magnetism, so much goodness, y'all. We're, good, we're going hard. Yes. Okay. All right, cheers. Cheers, 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 yeah. Rising from the ashes, you better grab your hall pass and get ready, cause we're gonna kick some ass to take notes, everybody know when we gon' hit the ghost, yeah, paranormal month, paranormal times, paranormal months, paranormal eyes, you can see the cellular structure effect when you open your front door and let it hit you in the neck, hit you in the back, hit you in the front, hit you in the ass, yeah, it's like that, rising from the ashes, we get up, we go out, we get it done, yeah, we're so fresh, it's so fresh, Fresh new content for you. You know we love you. You the fire tribe, keep it live, keep it live all the way today. And we'll come through in a different way that you never seen. Oh goodness, what you gonna say? Say it on the telegram, say it on the telegram. Go on over and pop up. Go on over and pop up an account and get on fresh so we can see what's happening next. You gotta get low, gotta get good, you gotta get fresh, gotta get hood, you gotta get Orange juice in your cup. You need the vitamin C, man. You gotta stay up. No jaundice today. No scurvy today. Rising from the ashes is coming to stay in your playlist forever, 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 ever, 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 forever, 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 forever. Yo, what's up, Fire Tribe? Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan. I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello, hello. AKA Gator in Paradise. <laughs> Gator, I barely knew her. <laughs> uh, today on the show, we have Chaz of the Dead. How's it going, Chaz? What's going on? You know, another day in paradise. Glad to be here. uh, In the gator paradise. Still breathing air. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, air, oxygen. You're out in Florida, right? Oh, yeah. You know, where the the beaches are fine and the bitches are finer. (laughs) Nice. What part of Florida are you in? Uh, I'm in Gainesville right now. Um, So not any beaches around me, but... uh, (laughs) You know, not too bad. The weather's actually getting kind of nice. Where, uh, where but I'm from South Florida originally, so all right, all around uh, Florida boy. Yeah, man. So you 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 do paranormal there in Florida. Uh, can you tell us a little bit? No, how about you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Bit being the first time on the show, tell people uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, a paranormal researcher, investigator, adventurer. I kind of uh, go all over investigating the paranormal, whether it's ghosts, UFOs, cryptids. 
I like to uh, cover all of the uh, the various niches and do some kind of controversial psychedelic experiments along the way, test out weird tech and things like that. Uh, anything that's novel, I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, and yeah, I, I, before moving back to Florida, I lived in Mexico for three years. Mm. Uh, my first book was on a case I did in Chile in South America. And yeah, I just, I love traveling and I love, uh, looking into strange stories and, uh, hopefully experiencing them for myself. <laughs> so nice. R- Roman went down to Florida and he came back to Gator. Uh, but- yeah, man, I, I was a changed, I'm a changed boy. <laughs> Change Gators. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, he, he went to uh, St. Augustine and he says uh, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of paranormal activity going on in St. Augustine. Have you ever been there to research paranormal activity? Oh, yeah. St. Augustine is one of my favorite hangouts. You, you have that. Uh, they call it the first coast, but it's better called the ghost coast because there's uh, mm. hundreds of haunting legends. Um, not only but between St. Augustine and Savannah and in between those mm-hmm. two cities, the, the, that like three, three and a half hour drive, I, I think you have some of the best uh, paranormal locations, not just ghost stuff, but some pretty high strangeness uh, between those two cities. And actually, my my newest book out now takes place on an island um, in between those two cities uh, oh, wow. where it's it's filled with bizarre activity from ufos to ghosts to to all kinds of of strangeness do you mind sharing some of those uh some of those at least one story from that book because i I can attest that that stretch from you know saint augustine to jekyll island or savannah right there Mm -hmm. very a lot like I found a lot of like mirroring story uh, stories of like paranormal missing peoples and all these things, but like people with the same name, like women with the yeah. same name, uh, like in one town here, and they both have a similar like. So yeah, I was it's, like, weird Whoa, you, it's, like, it's weird you said that because the this island, Fort George Island, um, it's uh, it's home of one of the most famous UFO cases. Um, here in Florida, the the Betts Sphere case. I'm not sure if you're familiar. Yeah. Um, but back in 1974, this family, the Betts family, they lived in this very strange house out on Fort George Island. And they were walking around the island one day and they found this big metal sphere. Um, they took it home. And in a, uh, a couple of uh, days later, a couple of weeks later, this sphere started to move around on its own. It started to ring, vibrate, and follow them around the house. Uh, And very quickly, it became this international UFO story, this magic moving sphere. Uh, Local news people saw it, investigated it. Eventually, J. Allen Hynek, one of the fathers of ufology, Mm -hmm. he got involved and investigated the sphere on three separate occasions. And even the Navy got involved. Um, but one of the interesting details I wrote about my book, and I'm not sure what it means. It's just one of those weird mirror details, though, is that um, the other one of the other maybe the biggest Florida UFO case is the uh, Gulf Breeze flap, um, which was centered around Ed Walters in uh, Gulf, Gulf Breeze, Florida. Flap? Yes. So the this flap? was a, yeah, <laughs> like a flap you know, of yeah, UFOs. Your UFO flap. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> 
Not not your lady flaps, your UFO flaps. Um, <laughs> I, I love them both. Um, but yeah, you haven't seen Romans. Occurred. Um, <laughs> the it's the Gulf Breeze one game. was a, a big series of sightings just outside of um, uh, Pensacola. And it focused around this guy, Ed Walters, and he took a bunch of photos of the UFO. And of course, there's a bunch of people who debunked it. There's a bunch of people who said he made it all up. And there's a, you know, a large Always. debate around it. Um, but right across this, the, the water from where he was having these sightings, where this UFO was supposedly landing, is an old fort called Fort George. Again, it has that weird mirror name element, and that pops up a lot with with uh, paranormal investigations. It's uh, that that mirroring names, and uh, mm. it's it's kind of like a, a a literary numerology where these names they just seem to pop up, and these weird things are are often associated with them. Wow. Um, and well, it goes back even further to the idea that, you know, they specifically build military bases next to these, mm. these hot spots, these locations, whether it's because they have some, some knowledge they aren't sharing with us, or it's just, you know, coincidental. Um, but it, it, that does happen. And uh, at the Fort George Island, where this sphere case uh, occurred, right to the south of it, the, the next island is Mayport Naval Station which has had a, a very interesting history of UFOs in itself. Um, so, yeah, this was a, a place um, for George Island. I went out there just initially as, you know, just to check it out, like I do with most haunted locations. And I specifically wanted to go to the Betts house and I couldn't find it. And that was, you know, annoying. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm not going to let this end. I, you know, I had to leave that day, but, Eventually, a few months later, I came back and I did some satellite, used some satellite images to find the most likely location where it would be and hiked into the woods, did some light trespassing on some government land and nice. found this uh, this house. And I was stunned by it. It's it's more of a castle than a house. Oh. Um, and it, it again, I go to a lot of haunted places and most of them you're like, oh, that's a cool place, you know, neat. But every once in a while, you go to a place and it has that tangible feeling of like, like a horror movie. Like you walked in on something you shouldn't be seeing. Um, <laughs> and this house definitely had that feel. Um, and that's what you I got, stumbled you got on. Inside. Oh, yeah. I got inside. I did some investigating. Um, I spent a night in there. Uh, tried out some weird ghost technology, uh, ghost code technology which is this whole other bizarre um, theory from this UK inventor. Um, but essentially, this, this super strange house, it's built on top Mount Cornelia. It's the highest uh, point in Duval County. So it's, it's literally house on Haunted Hill. It looks like it should be in Bavaria as opposed to a swamp in Florida. Um, it's actually on the cover of, my, of the book. You can see it peering through the trees there. Um, and yeah, so we walk up on this strange yeah, it castle. Dutch. It, it is. It's that Trudor style. It was built by a um, Mellon Greeley, who was a famous Jacksonville architect, the dean of Jacksonville architects. And it was built in the uh, 1930s. 
when you know being an architect was like oh. the fanciest job you could have <laughs> people right, right in the midst of the great depression <laughs> uh, so right before the great depression and that was the other thing i stumbled upon this house because i don't typically like to cover a case that's been covered before so i had heard about the bet sphere and i was like well you know i want to go see where this happened and then i i stumbled upon this house and very quickly discovered that there was a second paranormal case about this house and as so often happens in ufology and ghost hunting those two groups they don't talk to each other <laughs> they're oh. they're not communicating one of one's off battling demons and the other's off playing star trek and they've got no <laughs> there's there's no no talking going on um but i discovered there was a a ghost hunting whatever you want to call it ghost file on this house and for the ghost hunting community it was known as the neff house um and that's because it was originally built for a man named nettleton neff um he was a chicago railroad engineer executive and he wanted this winter vacation home, this grand home to be built um, in Florida. And he hired Mel and Greeley. They were both members of this Rebalt Club, which is also on Fort George Island. And it was like the great Gatsby-esque hangout, party time, you know, fancy weddings, all the all that jazz. Seances. Um, yeah. And so he bought the the hill and he built this, had this crazy house built. But the family never got to move in. They were struck with tragedy, like most ghost stories. Um, mm. First, the wife died in a fire that the newspapers called mysterious. Um, next, oh. their son, who was attending Harvard, he disappeared. And when they found him, he was found hanging from an apple tree. Um, and it was ruled a suicide. And finally, uh, Nettleton Neff took his own life in his office, shot himself in the head. Wow. And... So no one, their, their boxes were moved in. The house was finished. The house was ready to move in. But in the span of a couple months, this whole family just dies. And then as you pointed out, the Great Depression hits. And so oh. the this kind of fancy elite hangout that is Fort George Island very quickly disappears. It, no, no more fancy parties. There was a little golf course there, a nine-hole course quickly swallowed by the swamp. You can't even tell it was there nowadays. You see these little patches of sand and those were the sand traps. That's the only, you know, if, if you hadn't been told that there was a golf course, you would never know. And very quickly, this castle looking. Oh yeah. It's house, completely grown over, right? Yeah. This, this castle looking house. Well, it becomes the castle in the woods on the hill and it becomes the center of all these ghost legends. And Fort George Island had a bunch of ghost legends before this house was even built. There's a plantation on the island um, that has all kinds Oof. of ghost legends stemming from, from that era. And it goes even further back. There was Native American settlements on the island. It, it fits the cliche of built on the Native American burial ground. When you drive ah. through the island, you you drive through these shell middens. You can see them. You know, the oyster shell is still stacked from from these uh, native, you know, trash heaps. Um, <clears throat> so it, it and uh, it's also the place where Jean Ribault, the French explorer, first landed. Um, he landed there on Fort George Island. It's credited as the location where the first Protestant prayer was prayed. 
Oh, wow. Um, and they actually had a, a fortification. And they don't know if it was exactly on the island. They've never been able to find the exact location of this fort. Uh, but because of Mount Cornelia, because of this hill, it's figured that this would be the best spot to build a, a fort. Um, and the the story is that um, the they built this fort and then the Spanish arrived some 40 miles to the south. And Jean Ribault loaded up his, his soldiers on their boats and they sailed south and they were going to surprise attack the Spanish. Well, the Spanish had the same thought and they got their army Augustine? together. It was St. Augustine, and they marched ah. north from St. Augustine. And that, while these armies are, are passing each other in the night, a hurricane hits. Oh. And the Spanish, since they're on the land, they're able to camp through this hurricane. But the French, they're on their ships. They get blown super far south of St. Augustine. Shipwrecked, they lose all their guns, their cannons, their horses, all their equipment is, is gone. Um, the Spanish show up to this fort that is essentially un, undefended and they just kill everyone. Um, one boat of people escapes and it's from, um, he was a, uh, a carver. It's from these, these carved metal plates that we know this story from one of the, the French escapees. Um, and then mm. the Spanish marched back to St. Augustine and found that there was this group of French survivors to the South. And they marched down there and massacred them there at an inlet that is still called um, Matananza uh, Inlet, Massacre Inlet, um, just south of, of St. Augustine. And there's a little fort there, a Spanish fort that was built later on that's supposed to be haunted to all kinds of, you know, EVPs in French and weird stuff is reported <laughs> from that that beach. Um, but yeah, it's it's if uh, if. Uh, destiny was slightly different that night for George Island very well could be the oldest city in America as opposed to St. Augustine. If that, that wow. battle wow. had shaped out differently. Yeah. It's a weird place. Um, that story is not told when you go to the St. Augustine star fort and talk to the park rangers <laughs> who are basically useless. Besides oh, yeah, no, wearing no. awesome hats. <laughs> You, if their hats you don't weren't so fucking that. awesome, I would need them in the balls. <laughs> I know. Well, it's weird. Uh, and the the little one. fort to the south, too, it's it's never visited. Like, I had never heard about this little um, fort. It's pretty cool looking, though. It's bizarre. And they built it years later because of a siege on St. Augustine, because I think it was a, a British-led siege. They sailed up north from this channel which wasn't defended and they were able to park their boats right outside of St. Augustine from the South of the star fort, just outside of the range, of the cannons. So next time they were like, fuck, well, we can't let them do that again. So they built this little fort at that, that inlet there. And um, for your little rock needs to have a fort on it. If you have an island, uh -huh. there, you have <laughs> something going on, man. You got to hold that sand. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this this kind of castle house gets built on this island, which already has centuries of histories and centuries of ghost legends. I mean, for every historical story, there's there's a ghost kind of associated mm. with it, you know, whether it's the ghost of Jean Revolt or his people, or there's the story of Old Red Eyes, who is this slave supposedly killed by other slaves. Um, 
And that's actually a whole wild story for some more weird Florida history. Let's call part one of this episode weird Florida history. Cause, um, awesome. Zephaniah Kingsley, who owned this plantation, man, he was a, a character out of like a Quentin Tarantino movie. He's bizarre. Oh God. Oh. So this I'm guy, fine. In a Florida history episode, like a paranormal Florida. I mean, it's, <laughs> we could spend all the whole two hours on this, this stretch from St. Augustine to St. George, probably. Oh yeah. You can make an entire podcast series, like <laughs> 10 seasons just going mile by mile, ghost stories, <laughs> weird UFO sightings, shit like that. Um, <clears throat> but Zephaniah Kingsley, who ran this plantation, he was a super strange dude. So there was a plantation there before he actually bought it from John McIntosh, um, the famous, uh, Southern general. Um, but excuse me. Uh, he, he bought this plantation and he, um, he had some strange views for the time period. So this was just before the civil war. Um, and, uh, Florida was still owned by Spain and he, that worked really well for him because he was of the very unique belief of the time that mixed race people were actually the most superior race of people. <laughs> he thought that, um, you know, and, you know, he's kind of right. <laughs> that yeah, mixing good races <laughs> leads to a super, a, a better human. And the Spanish system of slavery was essentially based on your skin color, how white you were. The lighter you were, the more rights you had, essentially. Um, and this worked for him because he wanted all of his his mixed race kids to inherit his plantations. And, you know, he, he wanted to start this weird kind of mixed race cult. He rejected Christianity. He wouldn't let any of his slaves be converted to Christianity. Mm, um, people who visited him reported that his dining hall was filled with massive portraits of nude black women. Um, he actually adopted this Senegalese tradition so he could marry multiple wives. And one of his wives, Anna Kingsley, he married her, he purchased her and married her when she was 14. Uh, but she would go on to own several of her own plantations and like run the business for him when he started to decline in health. Um, she would bring in new slaves and sell them. Uh, so like, this is he. I believe he originally bought the plantation in nine, uh, 1830, 35, um, and he owned it right up until the Civil War, until the well, the purchase of uh, Florida, and then a few years later, the Civil War. And when they purchased, when Florida was purchased by the U.S., that kind of fucked up his whole shit because. The the U.S. was you know if you're black you're a slave. There's no there's no light skinned <laughs> people have more rights. Don't be ridiculous. Only only white people have rights, and so all of his you know sons and children who had become kind of like leaders in industry and business in the area were all of a sudden you know not. <laughs> they were all of their their careers were being you know taken over by by the white plantation owners moving into the region. Um, so very quickly, he came up with butting heads with these other um, plantation and landowners. And there's all kinds of weird scrimmages. You know, they would pay the local Seminole tribe 
like, here's some money and some guns, go attack that guy's plantation. And then they would, they would turn around and that guy would pay them and they would go and attack that dude's plantation. <laughs> there was this really kind of like petty turf war going on. Um, and eventually Kingsley decided to move to Haiti after the, you know, to avoid civil war conflict. And because he could have his vision of his weird mixed race utopia <laughs> going on there. <laughs> um, just building castles and just, yeah. Wow. It, bizarre dude. Um, and he was, um, had interesting, uh, treatment of his slaves as well. He would, um, allow that they had working hours. And afterwards, they could have hobbies and side jobs, and they could buy their freedom from him after a certain amount of time period. So strange. Now, that being said, he was still a sketchy dude because at this time, the Atlantic slave trade had been banned. You were allowed to, you know, sell slaves inside the U.S. If your slaves had kids, you could sell their kids. But you weren't allowed to bring any new slaves in from Africa. That was supposed to be illegal. Well, there's this incident recorded by the um, the U.S. Navy because uh, the Coast Guard hadn't quite formed yet, uh, where they caught this slave ship filled with 300 people coming from Africa, and you know, totally illegal at the time. And they're like, "Where where are you taking these slaves?" And they were like, "Well, well Kingsley Plantation." And the U.S. Navy was like, well, that's illegal, but we don't have food or barracks or blankets or anything for 300 people. So I guess, you know, don't do that again. <laughs> like, you can have this group. You can have this batch of slaves, but but stop it. <laughs> don't do that again. Oh, so he right was... <laughs> yeah, they literally gave him oh. a slap on the wrist. Uh, <laughs> like, hey... You know, as if he was smuggling in corn or, you know, illegal produce. <laughs> like, let's, wow. we better not catch you doing this twice. <laughs> so he was a complicated figure. Um, so this story of Old Red Eyes is that a a slave um, on, on the island was killing other slaves. It's very Freddy Krueger-esque. There's some versions where he was, you know, t- harming children. Um, whatever it is. And he was killed by his fellow slaves. He was lynched by them. Mm. And when I first read the story, I was like, ah, it's probably just a white guilt version of the story until I got to know and research Zephaniah Kingsley and discover that, ah, no, he was pretty weird. Like he would let his slaves decide their own, you know, they practice their own religions. They would decide their own you know, police their own community and things like that. So it's, it's actually a potentially true story. Um, but the spooky Was end of voodoo? it. Well, that's the spooky end of it is that this spirit, oh. this murderer supposedly continues to exist as a pair of glowing red eyes on the island. Um, there's this kind of flaming, you know, that classic oh. archetype, which does pop up. It pops up in Bigfoot. It pops up in all kinds of cryptids, Mothman, you know, famous for his glowing red eyes. Under um, your bed. Yeah, yeah. I saw a pair of them under my bed um, <laughs> when I was a kid that kind of started me uh, being interested in the subject, um, which was another reason I was so interested in this Fort George Island because it it had this mm-hmm. um, appearance. And it also had um, several reports of these black triangle UFOs which I also had a, a sighting of um, after conducting some weird experiments with mushrooms and Ouija boards. Um, 
I wasn't actively tripping. <laughs> I had been doing them. And then in the time between these experiments, I started to see UFOs. And uh, a buddy and I are hanging out one time, one night. And he's like, I'm telling him this. And he's like, okay, dude, sure. UFOs, Ouija boards, mushrooms, like you've lost the plot. And, you know, I'm like, all right, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> like, yeah, when I say, when you put it like that. Um, and almost ironically, we hear this, this metallic hump and this black triangle craft is hovering right above the tree line. I mean, it was low. I could hit it with a rock. It was right there. And it kind of just hovered there for a second and continued to cruise on. Um, and you know, if it weren't for my, my secondary witness, my buddy sitting right there with me, I might not believe it <laughs> to this day, but he was like, fuck man, I've never seen anything strange before in my life until that night. Like that was a fucking UFO. Um, and so, yeah, again, these seem to pop up all up and down that, that stretch of coast. They're very common all throughout Florida, actually very, um, interestingly, bizarrely. There's a lot of well, theory. Let's get into why. Well, the, the prevailing theory, especially with the triangle-shaped craft, is that it is a government-type craft. It is mm. a... Uh, they, mm. There's some blueprints out there. It's like the T-3-B. T-R-3-B, yeah. yeah. That's it. I always mix it up. There's a Star Wars spaceship that has, like, the same name, and I always fuck them up. I mix them up. Um <laughs> But yeah, that's the prevailing theory is that this triangle-shaped craft is is human tech um, as opposed to some of the other saucers and stuff. Uh, and, you know, we have stealth planes that kind of have that triangular, triangular shape. So mm -hmm. it kind of checks out. But again, my experience, it seemed very coincidental. It seemed very tied to my consciousness experiments. You know, it wasn't the first UFO I had seen and we were, we were actively discussing it. You know, like I said, the timing of it was, you know, wow. almost unbelievable. So we were having a conversation about it and it was like, no, no, I'm going to prove to you that this is real. <laughs> and boom. And again, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily eliminate the possibility of it being human tech. I have this whole uh side thing i've been researching i call b theory which is this explanation uh, uh, a human or i should say a, a earth-based explanation for the ufo phenomenon uh -huh. um, but if if these craft are human built they still almost certainly have a time space fuckery side effect mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it messes with our reality in a way that's not quite understandable and it seems that the best human experience we know that relates to it is the psychedelic experience and so it could still be a human craft and for whatever reason because we were discussing it because i had you know micro doses of psilocybin whatever it was in my system the cloaking of the craft wasn't working for the most part. People don't see these craft, but if you're in the mm -hmm. right headspace, if you're in the right, uh, vibration, altered, yeah, vibration. I hate to sound new age with it, but no, if your consciousness fine. is at that right point, that sweet spot for whatever yeah, reason, these craft are, are more tangible. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, and especially, you know, when you, when you look at that area, there's, 
you know, you got the NASA bases around there, mm-hmm. rocket launches going on. There's so many government facilities over there. And I think there's a reason for that that has to do, well, I, I kind of want to ask you, like, what is a lot of this tech? Because I don't even own anything, but the first thing I'm going to probably get is a Geiger counter, right? Just a classic okay. standard Geiger counter just to measure, like, electromagnetism and different sorts of radiation and shit. And so what 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 role does that play with, one, your geography that you're in and also with these techniques of checking these paranormal areas? Yeah, so it's it's one of these um, the, the the paranormal tech world is a difficult one <laughs> because yeah. there's a lot of shit out there that is just pure nonsense, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's it's not productive. Let's just say that um, Geiger counter is a good place to start. I also carry, and this is something I think every ghost hunter should carry, <laughs> a CO two detector, um, oh. and uh, out of all the bunk um, ghost hunting tech you do see, I think the EMF detector, you know, the one with the little lights, that one's actually useful. And it's these things, whether it's radiation, CO2, electromagnetic fields, the, the things that can put you in an altered consciousness, those are the the main triggers, it seems uh-huh. to be leading to these uh, events. Hmm. And it could be something simpler than that. I, and I found in my research lately, I've been reminding myself that stories, you hear a story, you picture it in your head. It's such a common experience that we don't even acknowledge it most of the time. But that in itself is a slight psychedelic experience. And what yes. does every one of these locations have without stories. fail? There's always some kind of spooky story. And even the, your your best cases, Mothman um, in Point Pleasant, that area was cursed by Chief Cornstalk in the anything 1800s. about Mothman, but I love Moth. Uh, I fucking love. Uh, like my favorite bug. He's the best. <laughs> um, the, you have the Pascagoula abductions in Mississippi. This is one of the. There's dozens of books about it. It's considered one of the best investigated cases. Um, the police try to catch them out. They put bugs in the room. They did lie detectors. They did all this shit that nowadays would be legal, <laughs> but they did all of this <laughs> to investigate this UFO case to see if these guys were lying. And to their conclusion, they said, nope, they're telling the truth. Like these guys definitely experienced something like they believe it. Um, and they were abducted by these weird metallic aliens. They don't look anything <laughs> like Brays or Nordics or reptilians. They're literally robots with pointed ears and pointed heads. Um, what? They were hit with a purple light. They saw three of these things floating at them and then they had your classic abduction experience. But they were abducted on a stretch of river known as the Singing River. And it's been called that ever since the 1700s when the French arrived and they heard this uh, ghostly song on the river. And wow. according to the Native American guides of these French guys, they the story is that a tribe um, was going to war with another tribe and they knew they were going to lose. So instead of being you know, enslaved and tortured, they chanted their death song and drowned themselves in this patch of river. And to this day, people hear this spooky song on the, the river. And it's the same place where this really well-documented abduction takes place and again it's 
on par with Fort George Island. You have the the plantation ghosts. You have the colonial ghosts. You have all of these, the the Neff House ghosts. And then this sphere shows up in the 70s, this weird UFO story. Um, And of course, for the longest time, you know, these have been separate fields. People have, there's been your ghost hunters and there's been your ufologists and then there's been your Bigfoot guys. But now in the modern age with the amount of data and information we're exposed to, we can recognize that now there's a trend here and it, it goes beyond these things just happening in the same locations. It, it goes down to the experiences, to, you know, things moving on their own the alteration of time, whether it's, you know, missing time or things that felt like hours were only minutes and things that should have been minutes were hours. And again, these are things you can also experience under psychedelics. Cause that's what I've experienced under psychedelics. I was staring at a wall. I thought maybe (laughs) 10 minutes at the most had gone by and it had been three hours. And I was pissed because I had wasted this trip. <laughs> um, but again, the alteration of, of space and time, viewing strange worlds. I've also had that that um, uh, Alice in Wonderland feeling where you shrink down, like your perception gets really, really small and it feels mm-hmm. like you're shrinking. Uh, again, these are all things people report not only in abduction UFO experiences, but in demonic encounters, possession, poltergeist, Mm. and interestingly, Bigfoot. I think Bigfoot, in most well-documented cases, he behaves more like a poltergeist. He throws rocks, he makes loud knocks and bangs, he leaves gifts and he Mm. takes food, things disappear mysteriously. He's almost never caught in the act, it's only glimpses. Um, similar to shadow figures peering behind doorways and things like that. The trends between these phenomenon are, are almost undeniable. There's something going on. And again, they could all be separate entities, but whatever mechanism that allows them to appear in our reality, that's the same. And I, I don't know what it is, but it has something to do with our consciousness. I, I wanna, know that much. It has something to do with that. Absolutely. I do want to stay absolutely. on this topic of getting into consciousness, but I was, I was wondering kind of what the CO2 detector, what, what is that used for? Like, what are you, uh, what's the utility of it? Well, uh, so under this theory, anything that can get you high, could theoretically cause a haunting. <laughs> so, okay, so whether that, so the CO two oh, is ahead. trying to detect if there's uh, something in the air that is like could like CO two is getting you high and you're well, having high CO two levels, dude. If you're in a room with a bunch of people that are breathing and like there's zero circulation, you'll start to get lightheaded and you'll start to trip out and have you know. Yeah, so, I've actually seen this as a, a common explanation skeptics have used for haunted houses where they they found like two or three cases where people thought their house was haunted but like their oven wasn't hooked up right (laughs) and they were like oh you guys were just you guys were just high debunked but of course that never explains like yeah they were high but that doesn't explain how the chairs were stacking themselves (laughs) you know like there's still these, these physical aspects of hauntings of ufos of whatever where they're leaving an impact in our reality. Something, it's it's where 
your hallucination bleeds into reality. That's when it becomes paranormal. And again, when your buddy who's not been doing mushrooms and playing with Ouija boards sees the same UFO you see, then you know something physically is occurring. We, we cross the barrier of just having the internal shamanic experience to having the external paranormal experience. Hmm. Do you think when you're when you're like under uh, duress or under mushrooms or whatever kind of a drug that you can alter the the physical with your mind? Well, I think that we. I think there was a, a certainly a, a good. There is a good possibility of that, and I think there was a science and understanding of that in the the shamanism of of ancient societies of the, the Mesoamerican societies in particular, um, where we know they were using these substances. And even if, uh, 1% of the stories we have are true, then yeah, they knew some shit we didn't know because you hear, you know, of these shamans being able to put their consciousness inside of Jaguars and, oh, you know, yeah. doing all kinds of stuff when, when they mm. ask about your magic um, too. Well, yeah, they ask about how how did you know which medicines to use? How did you know that combining this plant and this plant, normally they're toxic, you combine them together, they make ayahuasca. How did you figure that out? Oh, the plants told us. You know, they they have this communication. We took we took some substances, we took some, you know, and we communed with nature and they they seem to get valuable information. Now, again, as someone who's done a bunch of psych- psychedelics, you also can get a lot of invaluable information. <laughs> I've definitely done that thing where like you're tripping really hard and you're like, oh, Best this is the ever. smartest thing ever. And you write it down and then you, you wake up the next morning and you're like, dogs are plants. And you're like, what the fuck? That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. You totally, you're like that, huh? <laughs> so, I spent hours journaling on mushrooms uh, on, on lighter doses. Usually, I don't go get to writing when I'm when I'm too uh, too far gone. But I mean, I've had some pretty profound. Uh, uh, it's hit or miss. Literature come my way, you know, hit or miss. Yeah. Exactly. Sometimes you're just yeah. flowing. You're just like, this is legit. And then, you know, then now it's been, it has been hours. And then, yeah, other times you're just in the dark trying to write. And then you look and you, you just drew a picture and you doodled. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So can I ask you a question? Go ahead. You need to know uh, a decent amount about history which is awesome and ghost stories in history which is like really fascinating especially, especially for this us. show we we're yeah. <laughs> in the history yeah you know so oh, yeah. it's perfect um and uh, thank you for your gnosis of course but what something that really intrigues me is the rise of spiritualism uh in america uh, and not so much the uk one you know like i haven't studied mm-hmm. that much at all but the clairvoyancy the rise of spiritualism the esotericism that was really coming to like deep fruition in Mm. that time period that we were talking about earlier the mid 1900s yeah and you know 1850 and all that uh seances and things do you think well i want one what's your opinion on it have you done much research on it two do you think that there's times when human history is really kind of allowed more entities into the realm by maybe practicing things without proper intention. Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, um, well, one, I think 
Uh, it's a good question because I think we're we're reliving a kind of rebirth of that same spiritualist seance. I think so. Based yeah, movement. I dig it. I dig it. Uh, <clears throat> so all of that kind of stemmed with the the Fox sisters, and there's various there's hundreds of reports debunking, rebunking, unbunking. All of the bunkings have been done around the those two girls, uh, but they're they were I think New England somewhere. And they're credited with the the start of the movement, even in Europe. Like this was kind of the the first. And again, it started with the rappings, the knocks that they would hear. And they would start to communicate and get intelligent responses from these knocks. And it began to manifest into voices. And it really did have all your classic um, motifs of a poltergeist. And that's where the other shoe drops, because those things have popped up in history, those same encounters reports are consistent throughout history of people talking with spirits entities whatever you want to call them um as for nowadays i think ghost hunting in the whole is i i much prefer the term techno seance because it's the same idea and i really subscribe to most of the uh, paranormal activity experience as um, self-generated as a, a tulpa, an egregore is the, the common terminology people use. Um, this idea that they're thought forms, that we think about it really, really hard and our ESP or our psychedelic abilities, psychonautic effects manifest this physical entity and that's been backed up with experiments in the the lab you have your philip experiments um which are a little again they're not quite laboratory standard for for you know hoity-toity scientists but they show and they're repeatable that if you make up a ghost and you get everybody really into it the same seance effects occur as if you were doing it in a, a truly haunted house um, and I, I tend to think that is, is what's occurring, um, and, and occurred throughout the spiritualist movement. Obviously you had your fakes. Um, but when people really studied the famous hoaxers, it's, it's always the case where they're caught out once or twice doing a hoax and then they're debunked and we're, we write them off in history. But the people actually investigating these, um, mediums and, and these seances, Oftentimes they were report, well, yeah, we caught her hoaxing this one time and this other time, but there were like three or four times where we know she wasn't hoaxing. We had her tied down, but the, the lights were on and we saw the, the hand manifest inside the pudding or whatever it was. Um, because they used to do, that is one thing I miss. They used to, the seances used to be way cooler. <laughs> they used to do all <laughs> kinds of wacky shit. Oh yeah. Oh um, yeah. Nowadays I I heard... though, I do think, oh, go ahead. I think I heard a story once that uh, there was a, like a group of researchers and they made up a completely false ghost story and uh, spread it around and then uh, seen if people would uh, kind of like retell that story and uh, mm-hmm. or or have visions of that ghost that wasn't even ever there. But because of the story, like you were saying earlier, people had uh, a paranormal experience of that story, even though the story was completely. Right. 
Right. And yeah, and and whether people are in on it or not doesn't really necessarily have to be a factor. Like you can tell people a place is haunted. And there's some um interesting examples of like ghost paranormal personalities buying a house and saying it's haunted and there's like very little to no evidence that there was anything haunted about the house but they buy it and they make it look spooky and then they rent it out for ghost hunting and you know there's a huge debate around that and yeah that's probably unethical it's it's probably fucked up um for multiple reasons but it's an interesting experiment when we're talking about concepts like this um and there was actually another ghost hunting team i was um i you know talking with at one of these conventions i attend and they have this really cool documentary and they've captured some pretty like bizarre evidence like genuinely things moving on their own and they've been researching this house for like almost a decade you know cameras in it and you know finally it's it's a good project because they're they spent so much time and unlike a ghost adventures episode where they have to make up the evidence at the end since it is 10 years they have like 1 hours worth of actual evidence it's intriguing stuff um but like it goes through them like seeing some weird stuff and then they like come up with a name for the ghosts who live in there and there's two ghosts and they and as the story develops through their investigation the phenomenon gets stronger and i was like oh well you know any consideration to the idea it's a tulpa and it, what what what's a tulpa i'm like oh shit man like you've been doing this for 10 years and you've never considered the <laughs> fact that you might be creating these entities like your group together might be generating them and i tend to believe that's what most of um the modern ghost hunting stuff is with you know your ghost boxes and stuff like logically none of that technology works right the ghost box itself it's just scrambling radio stations it's not tapping into the spirit world the the, the words you're hearing are just randomly played um but i think you you've seen i uh, the evolution of it with the estes method i don't know if you guys are familiar with that but that's combining the the spirit box with kind of a semi-sensory deprivation, right? You put on the sound-canceling headphones, you put on the blindfold. So you have essentially a medium who's plugged into the spirit box. And so only one person is hearing these voices, this radio scramble, and the rest of the team is asking them questions. Again, it's essentially a seance, except you're taking out the medium's conscious ability to hear you and respond to your questions if you're doing it correctly. Um, but it's, and again, there's some weird responses. When you do a normal spirit box, it's like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't really make any sense. It's a lot of stretching. But every time someone does this Estes method, it is way more intriguing. And again, it's spookier. You've got the someone just shouting out random words into the night. But you do seem to get a higher rate of, answers that make logical sense and again i tend to believe that's because you're creating some kind of esp side effect but that's still paranormal <laughs> like that's still something we should be really investigating yeah. and looking into because if we can figure out how we generate these on our own we can figure out where the other ones are coming from yeah yeah i was gonna say too it's like you know even if you know it's lost information or you know spiritual inept 
uh, ineptness, you know, it still means that that the realm that we live in is malleable. Right. Just because we don't know how to do it, well, often the case might be that we're doing it wrong and then therefore inflicting something negative or like bringing something on somebody. Because I've had a couple experiences where, you know, like, yeah, it's like with with tuning forks, you know, when you're just really getting your consciousness into a specific state, you start to have psychedelic or very, very trippy experiences. And you got to be careful what you ask for, because I, you know, I asked, for some reason I asked for, (laughs) okay. Yeah. Anyways, you know, it's, it's intense. And so uh, I feel like there was like a succubus story. We just missed out on. No, no, those came naturally. I didn't have to ask for those. (laughs) That's Roman's, that's Roman's dating life. <laughs> I feel it from like ten thousand miles away, and I'm just like the nearest succubus. She's like, I got your soul in a bag, you little fuck. I'm like, oh god. Well, I, I think you put it well at the the start. I don't remember the exact terminology you used, but it's similar to how I like to refer to, and I, I subconsciously use entities, but I really prefer the term disincarnate information. Um, and that's because the bulk of the, again, the bulk of the research suggests that there at the very least is a reality of a collective subconscious. Mm -hmm. We could perhaps explain all of this as shared hallucinization between some kind of neural network invisible between all of us at the very least (laughs) that might be true. Yeah. Um, so then there comes the question of, okay, well, clearly we have mediums and people who claim they can tap into this, this subconscious network. Where is that information coming from? What is that information? And again, according, it changes depending on your culture, your location, who you are. It's either aliens, it's spirits, it's God himself. Again, the, the entities themselves, the, the information itself cannot be trusted. And we can see that by just pull up a list of religious predictions. How many people have said, uh-huh. oh, yeah, God told me the world's ending. Oh, yeah. And, no, classic, classic. And it, well, yeah. And, and of course, we're still here. So it hasn't happened yet. Uh, <laughs> they've all been wrong so far. There's, um, there's but. A- there's a book called it's not aliens worse it's us i think uh we could say it's not ghosts it's us yeah we are the ghosts i I do think the majority (laughs) of like the the spooky experiences people see absolutely that that's coming as a and again whether these disincarnate information has some kind of sentience it needs your brain juice your chemical sludge to manifest Mm. it doesn't happen without that and so even if they are entities with conscious ability don't even give them that don't give them that authority and that's why i'm super against the narrative of demons there's everything's a demon oh it's a demon What? Because all of a sudden you're giving a piece of disincarnate information, right? What do we really know about entities? They don't exist in the computer and they seemingly, seemingly exist outside of our our brain. So they're disincarnate information. That's about it. 
Most of the time, they're full of shit. <laughs> we know that just from psychic predictions in general. You know, how many... Oh, lost you. <laughs> um, they're bad at it. Um, sometimes, though, it's true. Sometimes a psychic does solve a murder. It's it's. What do you think about that um, information? Operate no, not high jump. Uh, about the CIA taking in uh, Stargate. Yeah, that was yeah. the remote viewers. Yeah, yeah. What, they, what do you, what's your opinion on that? Well, again, they had a, a success rate, and that it falls in what I like to call the eleven percent rule. And I got this um, from it, for me, it comes from um, experiments with random number generators. And so, if in a lab, if there's using a random number generator, and you have a participant sitting there, and they're thinking really, really hard about even numbers, mm-hmm. you have about eleven percent chance higher higher than chance um, of it being an even number. <clears throat> and that seemed to be, a, the, so around 61% mm-hmm. of the numbers will be even as opposed to the 50-50 you typically get. And that seemed to be about right with the remote viewing project, with Project Stargate. When they were able to confirm what the, the remote viewers were seeing, they had about a 60% accuracy, which is Way better than it's significant. Like it's clearly something's going on there. But as turn as far as military uh, usability, that's no. that's pretty <laughs> abysmal. It's not. <laughs> you're not going to send in like SEAL Team Six on a sixty percent chance that fucking Bin Laden's in that cave. You know, you, you need it to be a little more reliable. And again, there was no way to confirm the information until you had traditional intelligence confirm it. So if you got to use the traditional intelligence anyways, it, it's kind of pointless. It doesn't yeah. really have that, that effectiveness um, you need, but again, it's still intriguing. And the, the 11% rule actually is crucial when it, it comes to, well, if that's true, if remote viewing's true, if the random number generator shit is true, why isn't this a more studied, known about, discussed subject? Well, the problem is when they have skeptical scientists go in and conduct that mm-hmm. uh, random number generator experiment, the people, and again, the scientists were skeptical, not the participants. Yeah. The participants would still yeah. be thinking even, 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 but all of a sudden they would get 61% odd numbers because the scientists setting it up yeah. were looking for an opposite and experiment. You got that kind of back and forth push and pull which is funny because the best movies you you see that they make about this kind of stuff is like first it's a skeptic scientist you know that's dealing with somebody who's you know more cosmically aware or whatever in tune and then slowly over the movie he just he also becomes infatuated with it and then the big yeah. reveal happens and then everybody's mind blown and you know and the world changes forever because they yeah. just answered so well and, but that's the issue is that the reason we haven't gotten that movie ending is because it's the, the same issue they have in quantum mechanics where they've discovered that particles don't exist unless they're observed. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now what we're <laughs> all observers. So how can we conduct an experiment that's, you know, partial that's non-biased and essentially we can't. And that's the same conundrum in yeah. ESP research. 
Um, Dr. Jeffrey Mishwa does a great breakdown of this in his Encyclopedia of Consciousness, uh, which is a crazy book, but totally worth the uh, investment. He's a, one of the top wow. minds in, in this kind of stuff and really breaks down the... the Encyclopedia of Consciousness? Of Consciousness. Yeah. Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove, I think he's the, I think he's still the only PhD in the world in parapsychology um, out of Stanford. So again, I'm not big wow. on academics, but he's pretty good. He's got a YouTube show that no one watches, but pretty good. Um, What's it I, think it's, I think it's called thinking aloud. Um, but like a L L O W E D like permitted <laughs> aloud. <laughs> um, yeah. And he just interviews, you know, fascinating people on these kind of consciousness based subjects and things like that. But one more time, it, it, what's this, what's his PhD's name? I'm just uh, Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. Um, yes. Take your notes, listeners, look him up. He's worth it. Go <laughs> study what he studied. He actually just recently was in the news because he won a big contest from uh, Bigelow, Robert Bigelow's, um, who famously he owns Skinwalker Ranch. He's very into his paranormal research. His um, the group that used to research at Skinwalker Ranch has pivoted to more consciousness based research. And they gave out a, um, I don't know, something like $10,000 grant um, that I unfortunately did not win. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they were giving it out to the whoever could provide the best evidence for life after death. Um, and Miss, I haven't read the paper. It's long, but he is, is one. Um, he's a fascinating individual. And again, really, if you want to know the, the sciencey aspects of these kind of things and that is, you know, the the kicker of it. Like ESP, these kind of concepts we're talking about, they're, they're, they're real. They're just not usable. We can't use them to make a computer. So we're, they're not understood like electricity is understood. They're almost impossible to research because we can't really research ourselves, you know, with that objective <laughs> viewpoint. Um Hopefully, maybe with computers, we've got quantum computers to research quantum particles. Hopefully, we can make psychic computers to figure this, help (laughs) us figure this shit out at some point. (laughs) You said you you put in, uh, you tried to win for evidence for life after death. What What is your evidence for life after death? Well, the most ironic thing about that paper is I was pretty much, um, I, it was more of a creative writing exercise for me. I didn't think I was going to win. Okay. <laughs> I almost exclusively <laughs> quoted writings from Dr. Jeffrey Mishlove. So <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was pretty, pretty much a shoe in for him. Um, <laughs> uh, again, this uh, it's no, it's no longer called NIDS. It's called something else. Um, but this Bigelow, his, his research bizarre. If, if you want to keep, Plugged into the the cutting edge. Follow whatever Robert Bigelow is up to, because he definitely knows some shit that we don't. <laughs> that that's that much I can say for certain. <laughs> Do you ever watch that show, The OA? I don't think so. No, it sounds familiar. So um, it's with like this Brit Marling uh, woman who's like been in a bunch of other like these like cool cool like 
horror films, but like mystery, but it's cool. Like consciousness stuff as well. In the show, the OA, they become prisoners. All these people have had NDEs near death experiences. Uh, And this, this scientist like hijacks and kidnaps all these people, keeps them in cages and keeps killing them like over and over repeatedly because they're able to tap into the other realm. Like they're able to die and come back. And through oh, that, yeah. they're, Isn't that they're the... able to tap into this uh, etheric realm of like information, essentially, which is it's a fascinating topic. But it kind of reminds me of what we're talking about a little bit, you know, because that's one of the things we haven't talked about is the near death experiences, you know, being able to. Oh, yeah. Talk, talk about life after death or what that light is or what the, the energy fields are and what consciousness could be when you die. You know, that DMT is just a blowing <laughs> well, in your brain. The light is the light that they're that shining aspect, in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> when you wake up from yeah. the, what's the Rick and Morty, what's the video <laughs> game, uh, Ted or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, in that aspect, though, um, Dr. Raven Moody, who was the the guy who to- mm. coined um, NDE, mm-hmm. really heavy research in that. Um, he has a great book that's not on NDE, uh, NDEs in particularly, but I think it's crucial reading to start to understand not only the near-death experience, but paranormal experience, religion, um, science and it's called making sense of nonsense. And it's about this logical nice. theory of nonsense. Nice. And it's about, um, essentially recognizing cause, cause we do this all the time and I've probably done it at some point in this show. Like I still do it. We write shit off by saying, Oh, you know, that's nonsense. You know, it means that's bullshit, right? That's what you mm. say when kids are around and you can't say bullshit. It's nonsense. <laughs> Um, but the, the concept, the logical concept of nonsense is something really important that we need to, to put back into our, our thinking. And that's information that doesn't make sense. It's not true, but it's not false either. It doesn't make sense. And that doesn't mean it (laughs) won't make sense eventually. And the, one of the analogies he uses is chemistry, right? Chemistry started as alchemy started as a bunch of weird dudes in the basements of dungeons creating <laughs> weird sludges doing and made up words. right doing all kinds of weird shit and you know cutting their dicks and touching their bloody scarred up dicks together and creating a merkaba exactly Whoa. and now it and eventually Sorry. we have mercury <laughs> and uranium <laughs> like those made up words now they mean <laughs> something right they're a tangible physical thing. Um, and so just because information doesn't make sense doesn't mean it's not true that, or it won't be true or make sense in the future. Um, and it's also about recognizing nonsense that we use it all the time, whether it's religion. Um, and I'm not going to pick a specific religion, but think of whichever one you're not (laughs) think of the opposite one. And think about all the crazy shit those people believe, right? <laughs> what, what idiots. You can come up with some kind of nonsense. Um, but also, we see it in science. Think of the Big Bang Theory. Nothingness exploded into everything. That sentence is nonsense. That sentence doesn't make any logical 
doesn't have any logical meaning. It's the same kind of sentence Dr. Seuss uses to entertain children. It's, it's nonsense. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean it won't mean something in the future. It's a, a placeholder for information that we'll eventually understand. And that's kind of the view you have to have looking at paranormal experiences, whether it's NDEs, whether it's the abduction experience, whether it's, you know, I made love to Bigfoot in the woods. (laughs) That last guy might be lying, but still, if he's not, these experiences... Bookmark it. (laughs) They have a similarity. They have a, a common thread between them and that is that that conscious element yeah man Uh, and so while it might be nonsense now we might understand it eventually uh i think uh simulation theory is one of those steps forward Hmm. i don't necessarily subscribe to um simulation theory as in we're plugged into a giant machine (laughs) but i think the terminology is super useful. It's one. It's a, we're taking that step towards chemistry mm-hmm. because you know nowadays I can say oh simulation theory or just the matrix and mm-hmm. you instantly know what I mean. A concept that would take decades to explain to someone in the Middle Ages, we can explain <laughs> in one word, right? Uh, that's <laughs> we can hilarious. The matrix, true. and we're all like, oh yeah, okay, cool, <laughs> and those those concepts of reality time and space they're they're common common knowledge at this not knowledge necessarily but they're common concepts mm-hmm. they're common archetypes and so when we're we're reaching out to this unknowable information this nonsense we're we have better frameworks to bring it back to and we continue to make the crawl forward to eventually where these things will make sense they'll, they'll be understandable information around ufos around ghosts around whatever um yeah super fascinating man uh so one one of the other reasons that i wanted to bring you on the show was uh, because uh like we talked about earlier roman has been to florida and he was uh looking into and i'll be back brother i'll be back in oh yeah so let's fucking cruise hell yeah let's do it it was in uh he was in St. Augustine. So I was wondering if you had any paranormal stories of St. Augustine in the city of there, if you've went to any places and done any uh, paranormal type research in any of those places in St. Augustine, because Roman had, has had paranormal experience or not necessarily paranormal. Uh, but I, talked I, to other I interviewed people. people yeah. I interviewed people at the Ponza de Leon uh, where who they every okay I, I 85% of the people that would give me a, a chance just to fucking ask them a question because everybody else would just blow you off because I'm wearing yeah of course you know cut off jean shorts and like I just look like a dirty hippie and yeah. they're just like with a fuzzy microphone and they're just like oh, no uh, anyways um, not everybody's cup of tea and that's okay anyways <laughs> yeah dude I had a, a lot a lot of people tell me that they've had crazy experiences there and then that got me into digging into Henry Flagler and looking up his crazy thing, which ties right into the spiritualist movement because his wife's uh, at least oh, yeah. 
uh, at least the, the the middle one. I can't remember her name right now, unfortunately. Uh, anyways, brother, yeah. Uh, Elizabeth. What's your what's your saying, Augustine Paranormals? No, so, it's Elizabeth. She she was the one who had a mirrored uh, story up in Georgia. Was Henry Flagler's middle wife? She had the same exact name as somebody who had some crazy ghost shit go on. And I'll, I'll try to remember and get back to you, but but please continue. Yeah. Um, so St. Augustine, personally, I, I haven't really done like any, many late night overstay stuff. Again, I don't do too much of the, uh, the corporate ghost hunting. I've been trying to get into it lately with the live streaming <laughs> and stuff. So this October, look out for some of it. Um, and nice. usually it's the problem when I go to Savannah and St. Augustine is those, those are good, mighty good drinking cities. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Usually by the time <laughs> most of the ghost hunting shit, the late night, you know, spooky stuff has started. I'm probably not the best uh, to have around. <laughs> A little too rowdy. Um, but it is the there's uh, the regions around St. Augustine. I really love um, rural locations kind of out there and kind of between St. Augustine and um, uh Jacksonville, we there's a couple spots where they have these ghost lights. There's Greenbrier Road where there's the a ghost light, and again, people have reported um, that the road seems to be longer at night than it is uh-huh. in day. There's all kinds of these weird side effects, um, and then across the river, a little into the woods, you have the Barden Booger, which is this um, uh, this <laughs> skunk ape. Bigfoot uh, entity. Um, But he's distinctive from the rest of your Bigfoots because he's always seen as this this light. You always see this light first before you see him. And as you get closer, you see that it's a Bigfoot holding a lantern, Um, which, again, if you look at ghost light stories from across the U.S., you have the lantern holding ghost around almost all of them. There's one in Texas where a guy got his head cut off by a railroad, you know, a train uh-huh. sleeping on the rail, something like that. And he's looking for his head holding the lantern. Um, you have the uh, Brown Mountain. It was supposedly the ghosts holding torches, looking for their dead husbands of a, a battle that took place on the mountainside. In Marfa, Texas, where I went out and did some mushroom um, experiments out there, they have these ghost lights that show up very often. They're like super consistent. There's even a like uh, built by the state of Texas, a Marfa lights viewing center, like this roadside stop off um, where you can go and look at them. And they were thought to be the ghosts of Aztecs, you know, the campfires of ghost Aztecs hiding, guarding their gold out in those mountains. Um, and of course now all of them, like we were discussing earlier, now all of them have UFO legends associated with them. All in the 1900s, someone sees the light and it turns into a UFO instead of a ghost. Mm. Um, And I personally, here in Florida, I've seen a couple of those light spheres. And again, it's it's hard with spheres in the sky. You really can never be too sure. You know, uh, there was one instance I remember we were, um, this was South Florida, we were driving, 
And I saw one and I was like, shit, I, I slapped my girlfriend. Go, go turn around. There's a, a spear in this guy. I didn't slap her, slap her. I tapped her on the shoulder. Uh, she, she's a good, uh, good sport. So she whips the car around and we're driving and we're following this thing. And she's like, oh shit. She, she stops, slams on the brakes and she's like, Chaz, calm down, look. And she points down this road, and there's a bunch of people letting off paper lanterns. <laughs> these, you know, and these perfectly round candle, you know, floating up. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Um, so again, perfect example of, of why the light sphere is not the best sighting. But when it, you it comes to the amount of evidence, at the very top, you have the stories. Right down below it, you have these weird, luminous light spheres. Um, it's, again, similar to those the, those glowing eyes we talked about. But the mm. sphere is something that pops up, whether it's ghosts, whether it's Bigfoot holding a lantern, or it's UFOs, and most commonly in UFOs. And that was actually, to, to tie it back to Fort George Island, that was actually the the kind of nail in the coffin that decide made me decide to tell this story was that well one the, the bet sphere story really interesting but no one had noticed that the house that that story took place in was also a haunted house i thought that was pretty bizarre you know people missing the big picture there but the third factor was the the recently released Navy UFO videos. And I say recently, I guess it was three years ago now, but um, the 2019, hey. those three videos they released, the Tic Tac, um, that's the David Fravor one, was shot in 2004 on the West Coast. But the other two were shot on the East Coast. There was the gimbal, and that's the black saucer. It's kind of the, if you Google UFO, Navy, whatever, it's the first picture that pops up. It's that black saucer that kind of rotated, um, again, filmed with those uh, heat-sensing cameras. And on the same day, they filmed the Go Fast video, which shows this metal sphere hauling ass over the ocean. Now, there's been a lot of debate and discussion about those videos, whether they're real, psyops, what's going on there. But those videos were filmed by crews flying off of the USS Roosevelt, which was stationed at Mayport Station. Just It was out in the ocean at the time, but it was stationed at Mayport, which is the island that sits just to the south of Fort George Island. Now, that metal sphere in the GoFast video looks almost exactly like the BET sphere. And judging by the directions of the, the camera, it is flying, it's hauling ass in the direction of Fort George Island, where 40 years ago, one of these spheres not only appeared, but the Navy hands-on investigated, did x-rays, conducted experiments on one of these metal spheres, and told the family that it was something mysterious, that they didn't know what it was. Just so happens that, oh, they 2015, they film another one of these objects, same location. So then I went into the history of Mayport Naval Station and um, discovered that they had had a history of encounters with UFOs, that this wasn't the first time, the Bet Sphere wasn't the first time either. They actually had a, a UFO hover over the base. Um, they scrambled fighter jets in response, like alarms were raised, full, full blown. 
And the the uh, watchman got the classic, you know, talk down. You don't talk about this. You never speak of this. You'll be stripped, ranked. You'll be discharged, dishonorably discharged. Shut the fuck up. You didn't see anything. No UFOs. Don't talk about it. They got the classic talk down. Then the bet sphere shows up in the 70s. Um, and then a couple decades later, there's another close uh, call with a UFO at the base. Fighter jets aren't scrambled, but there's it's documented. There's... Um, supposedly showed up on radar, hovered around the base. Again, one of these weird spheres. And then, so it, it seems pretty coincidental that just so happens in 2015, they record these videos again, showing one of these metal spheres in the same location where these have been popping up on record for decades and almost always with Navy involvement. Uh, again, what does that mean? I'm not really sure. You know, no big surprises that the military's hiding something. I don't know what it is. I wish I did. But it's it, it brings new intrigue to those videos when we're we're talking <laughs> about what what's going on with that. Is it fake? Is it real? Well, I, I don't know. It's pretty bizarre that this has been occurring. And I've even um, heard the the theory since I've been talking about this that. The, the sphere in the go fast video is the same as the bet sphere and that the Navy actually swapped it out back in the seventies. And that the sphere like woke up, it reactivated and broke out of the base and flew back to the gimbal crap, <laughs> which would be really cool if that was true. But I haven't been able to find a serviceman to be able to confirm that. <laughs> um, but again, these spheres and again, these locations they seem to be, um, as John Keel called them, window areas where these things pop up more often. And there's always been this idea, going back to ancient religions, that it happens on cycles, that there, there's high periods and low periods, that these things appear in certain times and don't appear in other times. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that the, the filming of those videos... Um, occurred because someone at Mayport Station or someone in the Navy in general, military in general, knows about these these cycles. Um, it also might explain why that Skinwalker Ranch TV show is so shitty, <laughs> why Bigelow sold it. He was like, oh, the cycle's over. It's going to be another few decades before the Skinwalkers show back up, so we can just sell it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, knows? it makes sense, you know, it's in, when it's you intriguing. look at astrology and it's it's importance mm -hmm. in history, and you know, it's it seems to play an effect on our on our on our solar system, on our planet, and everything. So, you know, it does make sense. I mean, even on a yearly uh, yearly cycle, you know, if like when you really start to something that's been blowing my cap back is the more I do study history and the more I look at things, the more I notice that a lot of things happen from the months mm -hmm. of September through December. Like there's just so many uh, occurrences that happen and a lot of death, a lot of transition, a lot of sightings happen then. And a lot of moves are made politically also then, which is very interesting to think that if the the veil itself is thinner it is. during the time of fall as you're in that transition. Exactly. You're, it farther, is. The, you're the in the falling farther away from the sun. And yeah, exactly. So it's darker and there's yeah. some sort of paranormal void that is able to come in there for sure. 
Yeah, well, it's it's there's um so to to dive down a, a little bit of a side rabbit hole back to the idea that there is a human or earthbound explanation to UFOs. Uh, mm. the, the, the B theory, I passionately call it. Um, and this was the reason I call it. It's a little bit of a, a, a pun, um, because again, I believe there's something psychedelic going on and primarily, and that they, it has something to do with our consciousness and it's probably built into us as biological entities. It has something to do with everything, the whole fabric of reality. But bee theory is my second theory, and it has to do with with bees, the insect. Um, And this came to me from a supposed intelligence source I met in Morocco when I was backpacking about five years ago now. Um, And he claimed to have family who worked in the CIA, and there were some weird assets and stuff. But needless to say, nothing to amount to proof behind those claims. But... (laughs) He claimed that he knew people who flew UFOs and that they were were built on technology reverse engineered from honeybees. And his exact wording was that there was an anti-gravity chamber in the thorax of the honeybee and they just reverse engineered this concept. And that's that's how UFOs work, Um, which, of course, awesome. Love to hear it. (laughs) And, you know, I at this point, (laughs) I hadn't written any books. I had just like a little blog. Um, and I didn't even write it for the blog cause I didn't think it was worth really mentioning, but it was burned in my memory. Um, and years later when I was writing my book about the, the friendship case in Chile, which is this group of tall blonde supposed extraterrestrials. Um, and I was, you know, tall blonde Nordics. I was looking into the idea that maybe they were, um, escaped Nazis and I even went down and uh, investigated at a uh, former, quote unquote, former Nazi compound there in Chile. Um, but when I was writing in the book, I was, you know, saying, well, you know, there's the Nazi bell and there's these rumors that they had UFO technology. And one time I heard that <laughs> UFOs were based on bees. And if that's true, then, yeah, the Nazis could have built it. You know, a bell kind of looks like a bee's ass. It kind of checks out. (laughs) It was literally one paragraph. And a a year later, I was doing a show, and the host read the book and said that paragraph jumped out at him because he had a very close friend. um, He has a very close friend whose father um, worked in in intelligence, and all they would tell the family, all he would tell his family is, I'm a man in black. You know, like in the movies, UFOs, the whole thing. I'm a men in black. Wouldn't give him any more information. And on his deathbed, they were like, well, can you like, t- what's up? What's what's the UFOs? <laughs> like, you know, can you tell us what's going on? The only thing he would say was think about bees. Think about bees. And they always thought it had something to do with how bees communicated. You know, maybe aliens talk like insects, you know, until he read that paragraph in my book. It was like, oh, shit, (laughs) that's probably what he meant. Um, Which means there's a bunch of worker bees in a queen somewhere. (laughs) Possibly. There was a dude who uh, created some type of hoverboard using... The wheat, Victor Gurbinikov, like, absolutely. Uh, like a scarab beetle or something like that, some type of beetle. Yes, yeah, so I, I stumbled upon his research um, pretty quickly. Well, first I did the above-board research. I was like, what does the 
scientific community have to say. Um, and there were actually some weird stuff about bees and how they fly. It used to be this um, like mystery in science that bees were too heavy to fly. Some MIT mathematicians were fucking around one day. And uh, apparently that's what you do when you're a genius. They were doing math around the bees and the size of their wings. And they're like, shit, this doesn't add up. How, how are bees flying? This doesn't make sense. Uh, they even like put the quote at the beginning of the, that Jerry Seinfeld bee movie. Um, but nowadays it's said that they use the special whirlwind pattern and they can like, they get extra lift and they've supposedly solved it. But honeybees in particular have this thing that is still a mystery that the scientists call um, affectionately economy mode. And for whatever reason, when honeybees are carrying pollen, when they should be heavier, they're using less energy. They're, they're not straining. They're not you know, breathing faster. They're not flapping their wings faster. They're actually breathing slower and flapping their wings slower. And they still don't know how this, this happens. Um, there's also a weird thing about the gravitational orientation of beehives. They can build them in uh -huh. weird ways that other insects can't. Um, <clears throat> but then I went to the weird research, and that's where I stumbled upon Viktor Gurbinikov. And he was a Russian entomologist, bug scientist, who supposedly built this flying platform. What a sweet job. Um, <laughs> well, he's a, he was a real dude. There's like a portion of a university in Siberia named after him. There's like the Gurbinikov School of Entomology or whatever. He, he was a real dude. Awesome. And in his memoirs, he writes about all of these discoveries with insects and things like that. But he also writes that he built this flying platform one time. And what was really intriguing is that he described the side effects of these platforms and it lined up almost exactly with the list I wrote in my first book, comparing the psychedelic experience to the paranormal experience. The weird time alterations. Um, he would fly this uh, craft out to research fields, land, collect samples of insects, and then fly back to his lab. Wait, what's the science on this board? So... Okay, so he discovered that um, it wasn't the thorax, according to him. It was the wing covers of heavy insects, not just bees, but beetles, um, uh -huh. you know, those palmetto bugs we get here in Florida, the cockroaches that can fly at you. Um, any of these bugs supposedly would have the wing covers would have this special pattern. Um, and this special pattern affected what he called CSE energy cavity structure energy and this wow. is something that it's a special emf field that surrounds insect nests but also anything that um has a repeated cavity honeycomb like structure um so like even if you just got like a bunch of straws and bundled them together that yeah. would give off cse effect um and this effect could um uh there's experiments and you can see these ones on youtube where they put like a matchstick in a jar, it's a closed jar, it's dangling by a string, and they use the CSE effect to spin it inside this closed jar. Um, oh my so it's God. this really bizarre EMF. Ultimate sacred geometry, like the the the, the proper sacred angles. And oh, yeah. Uh, it gets like, super oh, bizarre when you Ezekiel's consider wheel. 
history. Oh yeah. Well, think about the scarab beetle and its deification in ancient Egypt. Oh, um, fucking shoot. There's also here in Florida, we have the Coral Castle. Um, do you know the, the story? Edward Leeds Gallen. Yes. So yes. supposedly, right, the kids who saw him putting this together said he was using this cone shaped device um, and, and using it to levitate these these stones into place. In Aztec mythology, and um, there's a story where Quetzalcoatl, kind of the main figure of their, mm -hmm. their uh, mythology, he sneaks down mm -hmm. to the underworld, and um, there's varying reports. It's either a seashell in some translations or a trumpet in other, but this mm -hmm. cone-shaped thing, and it's said that he fills it with bees, and they make this special humming sound. And he dances around this pyramid, in the underworld where the, the, the king of the dead sits on top of it. And he uses this device to trick the king of the dead and collect the parts that he uses to make human beings, the current iteration of human beings. Um, so again, you have this weird mm. cone bees popping up near the pyramids. Um, it's weird stuff. And if the bee theory is true, if it is something this simple, because here's how Gerbinikov's craft worked. He got a bunch of the the wind these um, insect wing parts. He stitched them together and he put them in these boxes, and then he put a bunch of these boxes on the bottom of what looks like a wooden pallet. It's literally like a pallet with scooter handlebars, and that was it. And this, supposedly this craft was possible uh, or capable of incredible speeds, incredible maneuvering flying he wouldn't go very fast on it because you know he was literally just a dude standing on a pallet and freaked him out how fast it could go um, how would it accelerate and stop so i believe he had one uh handlebar rigged for altitude to go up and down and then the other one to go up fast and um, slow but he said if he leaned forward too that would also cause it to to increase so there was also um, this weird he, he essentially and there's drawings in his memoir he believed it created essentially a, a bubble around it where he would fall forward and he essentially describes zero point energy which is something a bunch of uh ufo researchers and um, theoretical, you know, um, physicians, that's not it. Physics guys. Physicists. What's the word? <laughs> Physicists. Thank you. <laughs> I've spoken to many of these damn things. <laughs> theoretical <laughs> physicists have all, again, he described essentially, um, that's how he thought it worked. What's interesting though, is I recently got sent a paper, um, by a German scientist researching CSE effect. And he doesn't go into any of the crazy UFO stuff. He's just looking into this CSE effect. And he believes that it proves the um, superfluid theory, superfluid hypothesis. Um, and this was a whole other weird rabbit hole. So apparently there is this thing, and it's real. It's called, um, I believe it's helium is the only element we know that can become a superfluid. And you can see videos of this and it's essentially it um you cool it to I think it's 2 degrees above absolute zero and it suddenly liquid helium 
has all of these weird effects. It starts floating. It can, it will phase through solid containers. It'll just like fall through the container it's in. And it's because the particles of the helium are vibrating at the same rate as everything else. It's as a solid. So it'll climb walls. It's super strange. Um, And it's this mystery that's, you know, it's a mystery, but it's understood in science. There's been three Nobel Peace Prize winners of people experimenting with with this superfluid. Now, the superfluid hypothesis is that um, the uh, vacuum of space, the, the ether of reality, essentially everything, there is a superfluid that we can't see because it's, it's on a quantum level. You know, it's that Dark observance matter. problem. Um, and this guy's paper, yeah, essentially, it, it's um, not only dark matter, um, but everything. It's, it's, it pervades <laughs> yeah. our entire reality. And this guy says the CSE effect, the reason it can go through jars and um, you can use it, because other people have used it for medical practices to like, mm-hmm. you know, as homeopathic medicine, and it has a pretty high success rate. He says that this shows that the superfluid thing must be true and that CSE effect navigates through this superfluid. And if that's true, that explains the UFO's ability. If a a UFO uses this principle to fly, then it would have that ability to phase through objects, to blink in and out of of view of existence, that ability these crafts are said to have. Um, It would have that ability to um, essentially the CSE, the bug parts, work as a propeller the ufo think of it more as a submarine navigating this superfluid this quantum mm. fluid that is everywhere so it's not just you know go it it can go up it can go down it can navigate like a submarine it just rotates this propeller in whichever direction it needs and that's um, the helium that creates the superfluid so no, helium is the only element we know of and i again i believe it's heal it's like helium 3b 3b or something like that um again i'm not a a chemist so this is all out of my wheelhouse please please look up further information (laughs) what what does csc stand for a cavity structure effect um so the um uh shit what was i saying uh, the helium is the only yeah. one we can see become a superfluid. We can cool okay. it where it no longer becomes a gas. It turns into a liquid, and there's this sweet spot before it becomes a solid at absolute zero where it hits this quantum state. Because All cause of the other elements... Yep, go yeah, ahead. That, that's pretty fascinating because a lot of people say that NASA is the number one uh, buyer of helium. And they think it's because they put everything on uh, uh, like balloons or whatnot. But maybe if they're able to make this super fluid, maybe they're able to use that for different purposes. purposes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it gets into that Bob Lazar element 115 stuff. Yeah. Now there's a problem because now we do have an element 115 and the one that is 115 is clearly different than the one Bob Lazar was oh, describing. Okay. So 
That's interesting. Bob Lazar's element 115 is probably going to be 116 or 117 or whatever it is when they finally go public with it. <laughs> It'll have to get a later number. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's all kinds of ideas that that's the fuel source. And that's part of the problem because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't add up with the Lazar story. But that the element has been one of the contagious points. Well, but perhaps it's not the the fuel it's the medium it's what they're actually physically traveling through yeah. this element that's just invisible to us it's un unsensible to our mm-hmm. human uh tank. meat you, organs but these craft can navigate it nonetheless but you called it b is cb3 is that what you said it was called um, you know, let me, let me pull it up. I'm oh. on my computer. I Cause I think this. it's interesting that <laughs> I, do this mid show. <laughs> I think that the, it's interesting that the B part is in it. Right. But also the TR three B, the big, uh, the big ship, uh, if it's called three B or C three B TR three B. So that, that maybe they're using oh, that, shit. that crap. Yeah. I've never thought about that. Hold on. I got to find this now <laughs> for sure. <laughs> 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 that's a, yeah you're on to something there hold on let me see if i can find this yeah i like i like the cse uh that i've never never heard of it and it's blowing my mind and it, a lot of it intuitively makes makes sense that the sacred structure of the bee itself mm-hmm. holds you know like it holds bar in every culture like on deep antiquity like you know the mayans sac- had sacred sacred bees and the egyptian had sacred bees and they they're and also also the fact that honey lasts forever like these guys are creating a food that lasts forever and it's antifungal and antibacterial let alone they're like defying gravity and you know it's it's insane so it's like bees are such an important part of our of our history and on this planet supposedly i mean like maybe you know maybe they might be tech from another another realm too you know it's interesting to note and again about the they covered Uh, the mummy uh the the dude continually drank honey and then covered them and honey. Oh yes, yeah, and it crystallizes inside. Yeah, dude. He turns into a giant honeycomb-filled piece of honey puff candy, basically. And His whole maybe body. because that's the the tech of the gods. Fucking corpse candy. <laughs> um, so I got it here. It's three H E dash B. So yeah, I believe that's three helium three dash B. Um, and yeah, again, that once you start looking into that, it gets real dense because it is, it, again, it's the stuff of Nobel prize winning papers. Uh, um, it, it, it's hard to understand three H E dash B. Um, but you can look up, uh, just looking up super fluids it, like on YouTube gives you a better, they'll give you like the, the bill Nye version of it where they can, and they'll show you actually the the helium cooling to that point and yeah it literally just starts to drip through the bottom of the glass and then on the sides of the glass it starts to rise up and then drip all over the sides of it just defying gravity in this weird way and fusing through it um wow. it's like almost diffusing like a gas but it's staying a liquid 
Uh, it's super bizarre. It's very, very strange. Mm. And again, if CSE is um, back to the, the B shit, it's pretty bizarre that <laughs> we have a, a, a sharp increase in UFO sightings and a pretty sharp decrease in bee populations. Um, and if these crafts were oh. how Gerbinikov described, you literally just rip the, pee, the, the the wing flaps off the insects and stitch them together. That's how you make a CSE drive or engine block or whatever you want to, whatever it should be called. Hmm. Um, again, not an engineer, not a chemist, a not a physicist. I want to caveat all of that. Uh, but i am actively working on investigating this theory further i'm going to go talk to an entomologist see if what he thinks about all this shit awesome Um, so you know in in progress but it is it's one of those equations where when i'm thinking about especially about current ufo stuff I always run it through the the old, the old B theory and see how nice. the B theory applies because yeah it does work out and you know if I if I were a gambling man <laughs> and I had to put my my money on the table you know out of all the things we talk about parallel universes subconscious interconnectedness aliens from different planets all of those are still theories. We know for a fact humans are real and they do weird shit. So if I were to gamble on it, I, I might put my money on B theory, that this is just some technology that has been discovered and rediscovered and it's just kept secret over and over yeah. again. Uh, I mean, think about the Freemasons. You know, you know what were their job? Masons lifting stones. They they built these incredible yeah. structures, and their their pyramid structure thing or whatever filled with bees. They got a ton of bee shit on yeah. all their their things. It's I was weird. Say Freemason has a lot of bee symbolism. Yeah, man, it's it's so true. And you know, it's funny because we have so many answers in all these beautiful. Uh, things here on the planet, right? Like, look at the mineral mm-hmm. kingdom. We're able to get everything we use from the mineral kingdom. Oh, look at look at the plant kingdom. Oh, we're getting all these medicines and all of our food. Oh, you know, look at these chemical constituents. Oh, oxygen, right? Well, what about the bugs? Bugs are so mm-hmm. vast and so important. Look at the ant hills and the, and the structures of like how they are able to use their strength. And then we're talking about bees and spiders have significance also the moths. And so I, I think that is, this is, this is a rabbit hole. I'm inevitably going to go deep down now because oh, yeah. I fucking love it. Cause I love bugs. I have a jar full of bugs in my room because every time <laughs> I see a bug on the ground and it's like, I come across bugs in perfect condition, but they're just dead. They're just, and I'm like weird. They always show up because I think I'm putting it out that I like bugs. So I'm able, I have this jar of just perfectly dead bugs and I'm hoping to do some like white magical practices with it of some sorts. Also, I like to look at them, maybe dip them in some resin. I don't know, but you know, anyways, uh, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I think, I think bug science is cool. Esoteric bug science is even cooler. Paranormal parapsychology with tied in with bug science, you know, with mushrooms, like mush mushroom mycelium with bugs. Super cool, man. I love it. Well, in Turkey, they got that psychedelic, um, they got that psychedelic honey, uh, that mad honey. I want to get one of those and go to a UFO spot. I think maybe for, <laughs> for 
for my next uh, travel investigation. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, no, it's it's an interesting theory, and again, it's it's one that that really explains a lot. But there's there's also that high strangeness aspect of of you know the interactions, right? Uh, for the most part, these entities themselves are saying they're from different planets or different realities or different. Whatever, and again, we know they're dirty little liars, but that still is information. <laughs> it's still information we need to consider. It's yeah. not something we can discount entirely. Um, and yeah, there there are there's certainly a mystery. And if if these craft are um, operating in this way, the the side effects are still super bizarre. Uh, again, I, I think if B theory is true then one, it's probably firmly in the private sector, at least to a certain extent, uh, For sure. military and private sector, which in that case means Robert Bigelow probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and <laughs> Skinwalker Ranch was not a study of legit of paranormal phenomenon in a hotspot. It was the study of the side effects of operating one of these craft in a location on a repeated basis. And that's confirmed by what Grabinikov wrote. He stopped using his UFO because it caused a bunch of fucked up shit to happen. <laughs> it was causing poltergeist activity. It was causing Whoa. all kinds of weird shit. And ultimately, he thought it was must have been horrible for his health. There was a, an insect larva in a vial. He put it in his pocket. He flew in this craft. Hour, maybe an hour and a half. And when he landed, this insect larva was fully grown, something that would take several weeks. It wow. had magically grown. And he thought, well, shit, what is this doing to my organs when I'm flying this thing around? So it's and like the other time and space. Yeah, absolutely. And when he was flying it around, people would look up and they would see these glowing geometric shapes. They wouldn't see a Russian Ooh, scientist. I thought you were going to say red eyes. <laughs> well, close. It's pretty close. <laughs> you know, if they're seeing glowing discs, glowing triangles, glowing tubes, it might not be hard to make it look like a cross or something religious or something like that. And again, think back to every miracle in history, light over the hill lights of Fatima, things like that. Interesting. Um, but people would see the, the classic UFO shapes. And so he quickly realized that people are seeing UFOs all over the world, not just here in Siberia where I'm flying my little craft around. So that means someone else knows about this and they're not talking about it. No one else knows about it. So I'm going to I'm going to stop doing this before, you know, someone shows up and makes me stop was essentially his logic. He was like, one, all of these weird side effects, it's fucking up, you know, the, the university is getting this reputation as being haunted. Uh, if he dropped a vial off the side of the craft while he was flying it, dropped like any like trash through his fucking soda can off the side, <laughs> that whole area would get all kinds of weird activity. He, he once found a, one of these discarded vials fused in a window. It was like melted halfway through this window. Out. Um, wow. All kinds of disincarnate voices. Like things Philadelphia experiment. Own. Oh yeah. Very similar to all of those, those again, the, the history of supposed 
secret technology. He rattled the list. So either he had this really passionate side hobby this whole time, because again, in his memoirs, it is 12 chapters of bug science and then one <laughs> chapter of UFO shit. <laughs> That's literally it. He's like, oh, yeah, and this one time I built a UFO. <laughs> and ah. so he either was really, really well researched and like kept it a secret. No one knew he was like a super UFO buff. He was smuggling because this was, you know, um, the 90s in uh, probably was in Siberia. So the wall had fallen, but if he, the amount he had studied, he must have been getting bootlegged American UFO magazines and shit to know his shit that well, like if he's hoaxing it, which again, he could be, you know, it's not impossible. He worked at a university, so he probably did have the internet. <laughs> you yeah, know? but this guy's like not, you know, he he's... He's out here like being legit, like you know, he took his well, science seriously. Right? Yeah, he's respected so. in entomology, and so that I think is an interesting point. Like again, this German paper referencing him and superfluid. There's no talk about UFOs, but there's plenty of discussion of his other experiments and his other research, and that shit is also kind of weird. There's this experiment he did with these jumping larvae. And he was trying to figure out a way to exterminate them because they were pests. They were eating a bunch of alfalfa in, um, you know, in Russia and they need alfalfa to feed livestock or whatever. And the pests, they, they're kind of like Mexican jumping beans. They, they jump on their own, but they jump way higher than they should. There's like no math. Again, it's one of these mathematical problems. There's no way it could generate enough energy to jump up that way. (laughs) Nonsense. Here we go. Reverse engineer it. And well, he discovered that um, they must be using this CSE effect. And when they were in flight, when they were in motion, light would they would reflect light differently. They would be different colors, and on some instances, would become like invisible for a second. And this is referenced again these modern scientific papers. People are referencing this. So again, it seems that this CSE effect might be that missing understanding, that missing link. And again, it's it's something that's not quite as crazy as, uh, you know, some kind of hidden red mercury or all the, you know, crazy stuff we hear. <laughs> Nuclear yeah. fission. It's something that was kind of sitting right in front of our faces the whole time. Um, wow. And something interesting that I actually stumbled upon, accidentally stumbled upon some more confirmation of this when I was researching my my uh, current book, because, um, you know, Fort George Island, it, I was investigating that creepy house, the, the, that castle-like house with all the ghosts and where this UFO sphere moved around on its own. And... Um, I, I was trying to figure out how to investigate it because I didn't want to do one of my psychedelic experiments while I was also trespassing, you know, just I, I got a good piece of advice once. Don't break the law while you're already breaking the law. You know, you want to minimize, <laughs> minimize that when you can. Um, but there was a <laughs> there was an inventor in the UK and I got in touch with them through some other um teams here in florida who are working with him who claims that he's cracked the paranormal 
And sweet. Uh, well, you know, I'm I'm saying that joking around. Like I no, just it might be theory claiming the oh, exact yeah. same shit. But yeah. here's his B theory. His is ghost code theory. He calls it quantum paranormal theory, but it's not well, eh, quantumness is debatable. Uh, he kind of uses quantum like a comic book writer, you know, like it's quantum. <laughs> um, but he thinks that all hauntings are actually invisible UFO spheres, that there are these spheres like the bet sphere, like the go fast sphere. And they're the system of probes um, and that they give off radiation. So they only turn on at night. That's why you have the witching hour. Um, if you get close to them, they'll try to scare you away. That's why you, you get EVPs and you get, um, and that's why the EVPs never really make sense. It's because like you're talking to a chat bot. You're not talking to a real ghost. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a fun theory. If you like your, your ghost adventures type stuff, because he goes through all of those kinds of evidence and explains why it's actually a UFO sphere. Um, the problem is, that 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 evidence isn't real <laughs> evidence right evps i mean it's just there's so many signals in the air of course you're going to pick up random noise when you record <laughs> the air um the other one though the piece of information that stuck out to me that i thought was really interesting is he has dozens of videos of ghost orbs floating around you know flying weird and anyone, especially anyone who's investigated ghosts here in Florida, knows that those are bugs. It's bugs. They're bugs flying around, reflecting the camera light, the IR light the, for night vision cameras, specifically really reflects off of bug wings and it keeps, it, they're bugs. It's bugs. Um, but he has a bunch of these videos. And then next to them, he has a bunch of videos of UFO spheres moving around. And they are moving in a similar pattern. They're moving in a similar way. And he says this is proof that the ghost Space spheres are actually spheres. But I, again, I think it's interesting because we often hear this with the UFO discussion that, oh, these crafts are showing impossible physics. Impossible physics. No, it's not quite impossible physics. It's impossible for planes. It's impossible for birds. But insects, we see do that shit all the time. They stop on a second. They do loop-de-loops. They fly down. Some of them can land on the water and fly out of the water. They absolutely have these kinds of abilities. And I think that guy might have accidentally stumbled onto something with his ghost sphere, UFO sphere theory there. Because he's right. No, they do. Those UFO spheres are moving like those bugs. <laughs> absolutely seem to have a, a similar wow. um but anyways Space i did bugs, hold of one Space of these bugs. he um patrick jackson is the the mind behind the ghost code theory and he's built a device and an app you can put it on your phone for i think it's 8.99 uh, <laughs> where he supposedly attracts these ghost spheres and causes paranormal activity um, and so I actually got a hold of one of these and tried it out in the Wait, with the app? Uh, I used the app and the device, man. <laughs> I went, I went all out, um, the, and tried <laughs> it out in the house and some weird stuff. I would say some, some, uh, nothing like a UFO sphere showing up, <laughs> but 
there were some weird EMF readings and some weird localized weather events. Um, some bizarre stuff occurred during those those investigations. But uh, if you want to hear that, you got to buy the book. <laughs> buy the book. Yeah, I'm going to stick a plug book. in there. A, a place yeah, between time and space. A true story about ghosts, UFOs, and Florida's strangest home. Go check it out <laughs> on Amazon and at paranormalitymagazine.com. That's <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, any, yeah. Any other plugs you want to do? I mean, we should probably do final questions and then oh, yeah, plug, shit. plug. Oh, the time rapping, flies dude. past. Look at that. Bro, it's <laughs> been a paranormal experience up in here, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, uh, fuck, I don't have any more questions, man. I thought that was really good. We, I think we covered a lot in, uh, in the interview. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Chaz. And uh, yeah, shout course. out to... No Hit me, Roman. What you got? Shout out to Andy <laughs> okay, Rouse. Yeah, I definitely want to ask. Oh, Andy, the boy. So, okay, I'm going to... It's just two questions, okay? <laughs> but um, one, what is ancient technology of ghost hunting stuff because the word scepter is very close to the word specter which specter is another term for ghost and it's like a wand and it has jewels and rubies and conductive materials potentially even magnetized so is there any cases that you've come across in history that have been like dude that's ancient ghost tech or like that's wielding into another space-time dimension also why are um why are angles uh you know angular for spirits and you know round things seem to flow energy and spirits and and corners seem to trap spirits and dark shadowy figures like to be in the corners well all, all of that comes down to to language and uh, it goes back to what i was saying earlier with the uh, reminding ourselves that storytelling is a psychedelic experience when we we hear a story <laughs> it creates a, a a thing inside your head and who knows what that yes. creates outside your head? Um, words are the the base element of that. And, you know, we talk about magic and we think of like Harry Potter spells and shit. But magic is just <laughs> words. It, it, it's the ability, the understanding of saying things and creating images in the heads mm. of others and what those images thereby create externally. And so all that shit, yeah, I, I do kind of think, uh, here's the thing, it's a dichotomy, because when you say shit like that, I'm like, hell yeah, I can see that, I'm with it, because I'm, I'm a language teacher, I'm a writer, that all makes sense to me. But anytime someone gets into, like, numerology, I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, you nah. just made up some <laughs> shit. So I feel two ways about it, where, like, that might just be my biases bleeding through a little bit there because I understand it. I feel it. But uh, when I hear numerology, I think, man, that guy's fucking crazy. So you, oh, you, you mean you mean Gematria Kabbalah stuff? <laughs> oh, any of it, you know, it's, it's <laughs> the, the 9 11, 9 plus 11 is 21, you know, fucking 21 hours, 21 legal drinking age. Drinking age has seven letters take out the vowels you got five <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just oh, all of it it's too much barack yeah. obama was born on seven 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 yeah uh-huh. oh god that's uh, mm. and like maybe for some people that that does it for them um Simply but like, human. 
again, if you if you believe in those stuff, then it does have have significance because it creates that image in your head. And if that's creating that, baby. then you're who knows. <laughs> Now Roman's just shouting out numbers because he's a super gematria in there. <laughs> 420. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, oh, yeah, I'm going to be it. in Kissimmee uh, hanging out at my, apparently my new family. I always say apparently, but my new family uh, that my mom married into uh, a bit ago. I'm very, very blessed to be a part of this family. Now they own a fan boat company, campground, barbecue restaurant down in kiss me. Oh, wow. Uh, awesome. A lake. Yeah, dude. So I'm going to be out there for at least a month working, you know, eating gator bites, cruising, like oh, trying yeah. to explore as much of Florida as I can. So you're more than welcome to come on some, some boat rides and uh, hang out at the campground. Who knows? There might even be some places to go check out and bring your gear around that. Hell area. yeah. I'd love to, man. That nice. sounds like a blast. That's not far awesome. from here. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> cool beans. Excellent, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate your time and a fascinating conversation, man. Thank you. We'll have, of course, we'll have, to have you back again sometime. Yeah. Uh, Everyone, you guys can follow me at Chaz of the dead on all the social medias. Um, the websites, Chaz of the dead.com. You can find links to my books and articles and all my shit there. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. It was a blast. Thanks, man. Roman, final word. It was a blast. <sighs> uh, check your check your poop for corn kernels. Uh, <laughs> make sure that you're digesting all your food properly. Breathe, <sighs> breathe in through each of your nostrils separately to make sure Never that mind. you're main, uh, maintaining your balance. That's and, a word. Uh, Sorry, yeah. Fire tribe. Thank you. <laughs> If you're not down with that, wake up. Wake, 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 wake up. Uh, uh, uh.